The world has never lacked for a troubling incident or cause for concern, but there are times when the drumbeats reach a crescendo, and in the case of war, the potential for large-scale conflict seems to rise when a hegemon begins declining, and rival powers see their opportunity to increase their share. Ray Dalio, having made a success running the world's largest global macro hedge fund and authoring several books on the major forces shaping world history, recently raised his estimate on the chance of World War III occurring in the next two years from 35% to 50%. Given how high the stakes are in that outcome, those are not the most encouraging odds. Tonight, we are joined by returning guest Lance to discuss the recent conflicts in the Middle and Near East, as well as the potential for such in the Far East and the general escalation amongst the nuclear-armed superpowers. Well, I'm not a crook. I burned everything I've got. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been I'm The police has been the most successful. Hello and welcome. You know the show's name. We have a special guest tonight by the name of Lance. He's joined us before. Thank you for coming, Lance. Hans and I are here to talk about current events. If uh, you haven't gotten enough of that from the news lately, um, it's actually well, thank something you, that gentlemen. Lance, uh, to, to give people maybe a little bit of background, he has a pretty cool set of platforms that he runs on various social medias, including YouTube and Twitter and you can fill in the blanks there. I became familiar with him, I don't know, maybe a year ago, and we've had a few conversations since then. Smart guy, has a lot to say, has some background in the military, and understands a lot of this stuff, I think, from that perspective better than most of us who don't. Also has kind of an interesting publishing arm of his various platforms that he can talk about. But tonight, I thought we'd we'd focus on the prospects of World War Three as... I'm sure other people have used uh, to make clickbait titles, but I, it, it is it is concerning. Um, th- there have been obviously a lot of uh, flare-ups that's been happening this year. In addition to what happened last year in Ukraine, uh, we now have a potential conflict uh, in Taiwan, and then also we have an active conflict in the Middle East, which is always concerning. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Lance... Um, what are your thoughts on well, what's going on? Well, thanks, gentlemen. I appreciate having you guys, or rather the other way around, insinuating myself onto your show a second time. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because we spent the last, I would say, 80 plus years or 80 years of the uh, you know composition of the Soviet Union on the precipice of nuclear fire. You know what I mean? And it seems as though we're closer to a nuclear exchange Closer than ever. And I mean, it's no, 
it's no hyperbole. I think a lot of the times, especially if you've watched, you know, Doctor Strange Love, which is one of my favorite films of all time, you're aware, acutely aware of all the propaganda against nuclear war and so on and so forth, which is good. It's good propaganda, right? But at the end of the day, now the the, the I would say the specters shifted, right? Now the enemy are not so clear the friends are not are less clear than ever uh, a lot of uh, political division within the west and in the east many people wouldn't think that but they did there is and now there's this great power competition happening against a larger block of course i hate to insult the uh, intelligence of everyone here or in the audience but just for the sake of clarity um the united states empire with nato is aligned against a block which is BRICS, right? Uh, well, which is an economic forum, but it broadly delineates the political connections between a coalition of nations, which figure largely, which is the PRC, which is the People's Republic of China, which is what we call China today, of course, the Russian Federation, and of course, Iran. Now, we're going to get into the meat and potatoes here soon, but I just wanted to briefly explains to the audience that we are into a Cold War 2.0. The boomers have had their way, unfortunately. And um, so uh, the conflict in the Ukraine, the conflict that's going on in the Middle East, and the conflict arising in the Southeast China Sea, all these things are interrelated and part of a larger conflict that we'll delve in into the show later on. But I think that's a good introduction thus far. Um, do you have anything to say to that, Hans? You know, I think, uh, I think it was actually a show with you, Lance, that we did earlier this year, last year. I don't, I'm an old man. I can't remember this stuff. But I do remember saying, I think it was the Peloponnesian War episode we do, did with you on your show. And it was in the, the discussion was around the series of sort of minor kinetic incidents around the Mediterranean that enveloped the Peloponnesian War, if you recall. Fights in Syracuse, fights off the coast of Sicily, fights in Italy, fights in Asia Minor, all over the place, all the way up to the Black Sea. There Precisely. were all, all kinds of small proxy wars. There was direct combat between the main um, antagonists. And I predicted that this would be our future in the near future. That the United States would enter a world where uh, suddenly there would be these small microcosms of hot war everywhere and american troops would be deployed actively deployed into these regions very rapidly and look what we've seen um you know i think since that show there's now a buildup of over a hundred thousand american armed forces in europe um we have reports of dozens uh, i think at least two dozen confirmed dead american uh, mercenaries, quote-unquote aid workers in one or two cases uh, within Ukraine proper. Uh, the real number is probably much higher. Um, we have Americans now actively dying uh, in the Middle East. Uh, we, have, we had a helicopter crash with uh, five uh, Special Forces members uh, just the other day, uh, all dead somewhere in the eastern net. I heard Iran launched a drone attack against a U.S. airbase in Iraq, well, which had, I wasn't even yeah, aware of existing. Not even but. just Iraq. We've had uh, massive drone strikes and missile strikes against uh, both American uh, sort of 
tip of the spear frontier bases within uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, all, of, all over both countries we've had uh, suffered a series of attacks. You know, we have the rapid deployment of the American Navy into the eastern Mediterranean, into the Persian Gulf. Um, there's more American buildup in Western Africa and Eastern Africa. Uh, so you have uh, the potential. I know this has been sort of delayed indefinitely because you can't really count on West Africans to pull off a military operation. But, the you know, what seems to be the inevitable intervention into Niger um, mm. has been slowly building up. It might take another year or two because, as it turns out, um, you can't really rely on Africans to do this for you. So right. more than likely, the Americans and the French are going to do it themselves. So the United States is now involved in a Peloponnesian War scenario. You will have American troops act not only through proxies, but actively fighting themselves in these sort of far-flung frontier regions that are at the fringes of wider conflicts. What is the core of that analogy? Obviously, geographically, the Peloponnesian area was close to the Middle East, but what what conceptually is similar to what the U.S. is involved in, or so frankly, other countries? Conceptually, the Peloponnesian War did not take place strictly in the Peloponnese at all. The Peloponnesian War stretched across the entire Mediterranean. Okay. There were battles in the Peloponnesian War fought vigorously at sea, in the Adriatic, in the Aegean, all over the Lower Med, all the way up towards the Black Sea. You had infantry battles, um, you had sieges, you had ambushes, you had guerrilla warfare, you had village raids in Sicily, in Italy, in Asia Minor, all the way up to Thrace, all the way up Illyria, deep into the heart of northern Greece and Thessaly. So this was a major, by, by the scale of the time, a major, huge conflict spanning hundreds of miles. Now, for a conflict like that to span hundreds of miles was a tremendous undertaking. If you apply that same sort of scale to today, it sort of fits. So now we're, we're dealing with the scale of thousands of miles at a time. We have deployments into very far-flung locations with disparate topography, geography, climate conditions, you know, local factors, local populations are all very different from each other. So it's rapidly turning into a Peloponnesian War scenario where the Athenians and the Spartans were having to deal with a litany of factors beyond just fighting on the, you know, the central plains of Greece. You know, this is now a, a much larger conflict. They're having to, they were having to expend extraordinary resources to, to undertake. And as a further allusion to, or you know, basically underlining what Hans said, it's not simply that the Peloponnesian War engulfed the entire Hellenic world or the entire Hellenic civilizational sphere, but it also involved Persia at the time, as well as the Carthaginians. For instance, there was this episode with Timoleon, who was sent by the Corinthians out to Syracuse and uh, had to get into some uh, shenanigans with the um, with the uh, Carthaginians. So it's actually very interesting because the parallels hold true. And I think the most interesting thing about humans is that technology has changed, but humans fundamentally haven't in a fundamental way, obviously have changed somewhat, but um, in a, in a political concept, they haven't. 
right? The way that we politic with each other still is reminiscent of the times from before. And I'm not talking about the the official institutions or so on and so forth, but I'm talking about the political dynamic. And so I just wanted to add that before we kind of naturally segue on. However, I would say this, that the ramifications of now, the politics of now, have far more dire effects for civilization as a whole, for everyone as a whole, than it did back then, because they weren't playing with yeah. hellfire. Because <laughs> of nuclear weapons, well, in, you mean. In, in, a kind of, yes, yes. Uh, in a kind of twist of uh, historical irony, you do have the Persians as a major player, right. in sort of in the background. So one of the unspoken elements of the Peloponnesian War, as Lance is alluding to, is the presence of the Persians. The Persians uh, played an enormous role in the Peloponnesian War, but not a direct one, not at first. They primarily were involved through financing certain Greek factions and providing support, uh, namely to the Spartans. Boy, that sounds familiar. Additionally, the Persians... um, (laughs) People seem to forget that there was a the Greek world, the Hellenic world was not you know incredibly well organized. So there were large swaths of Greeks uh, who actually sort of paid fealty to Persians directly. Per, you know, Greeks living in what we think of as the Levant now, Greeks living in Asia Minor, um, Greeks even living in the interior of Asia uh, had a lot of political sort of implications with Persia directly. And this, of course, affected the wider uh, conflict of the Hellenic world. You had Greeks moving back and forth. You had Greeks that were suddenly, you know, more than likely spurned on by Persians to join in on the conflict on one side or the other. Sort of undoing the Greek stranglehold over the Mediterranean was one of Persia's main foreign policy objectives at the time. But Persia didn't get too directly involved in terms of actually landing troops into one side or the other in the conflict. And you see that right now. So Iran really is not directly involved, although it's becoming very close to getting directly involved at this point. Um, There's maybe only one degree of separation at this point between the Iranian state and the, uh, let's call them the the tributaries of of America on the other side. So, for example, um, I don't know if you saw, but the the most fascinating people on the face of the earth right now, the Houthis of Yemen, have actually began engaging in intercontinental ballistic missile strikes. Um, Miraculously. Of all people. (laughs) Of all people. Uh, Yemen is actually launching uh, space-based attacks and launching cruise missile strikes against Israel hundreds of miles away. Um, Now you can say this is more than likely Iran behind it. This is where, you know, there's only one degree of separation between the Houthis and Iran in that uh, Iran literally gives money to the Houthis to, to create their existence. The Houthis are a direct proxy of Iran. You have a lot of these IRGC militias. Now, these guys aren't really even proxies. They are basically the IRGC in all but name. This is, these are the kind of guys that Soleimani ran around with for a yes. very long time. And they're very effective in Syria. Um, they 
basically saved Saad in multiple occasions in Syria. They were able to rapidly defeat um, ISIS battalions in multiple urban battles. Um, they're very competent, by yes, the way. Yes, they're extremely competent, extremely mobile, and sort of uh, we'd call shock troopers. They really excel at moving in in sort of Humvees and trucks. They move in very rapidly. They're well-equipped. They come with, you know, some basic body armor, basic explosives you know, supplied by the Iranian government. Um, and they move in. They have, you know, clear tactical objectives and they get out. Mm-hmm. These guys aren't really, you know, proxy soldiers even. They're, they are, I mean, they are the RGC. They are effectively Iranian soldiers. But they, you know, have this sort of, you know, you can think of them almost in the same legalistic terms we think of the French Foreign Legion. It basically is the French military. But we kind you know, everybody agrees to, you know, agrees, ah, well, it is, you know, it isn't. And it allows them a little bit more leeway. So in that case, you don't even have a real degree of separation. You have the illusion of one. So when you have IRGC militias, you know, launching a series of disparate attacks against American bases inside of Iraq. Mm-hmm. That that is, you know, less than one step or one degree of separation. Somewhere between zero and one, between you know, a direct attack from the state of Iran against the United if, States. If you don't mind, if I interject here, just yeah. to give some background. For those of who, who those of you who don't know, Hans is alluding to, for instance, what was called the Batter Brigades, but now they're called the Batter Organization, and a number of other different um, allied, basically Shiite. I guess uh, we would call them paramilitary forces. The Cod's Force and the IRGC function basically how the American Green Berets function, which is they go to foreign countries, they stand up local troops and they give advisor and direction intel um, logistic support and so on and so in the case of iraq i think uh, it's important to give reference to how how well entrenched they are in iraqi politics and presence as well as how close they have been and why i constantly say america lost in iraq because here's the thing americans think that we won in iraq because we toppled saddam's government however we don't understand that we lost strategically. We lost strategically because of the fact that, yes, we were able to destroy the Ba'athist organization in Iraq. However, people don't know that Henry Kissinger was against doing that intervention because Iraq was actually the main bulwark against the Persians. Now, with, you know, with Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athists out of power, what ended up happening is that Iraq became a client state of Persia, or rather Iran, whatever. And so now, especially during the the 2007 surge under Petraeus, a lot of the insurgency was actually fomented by the Iraqis, the Quds Force specifically, which is one of the reasons why um, the assassination of Soleimani was so uh, popular amongst a lot of GWAT veterans is because he was the mastermind. uh, uh, He was the main reason why a lot of the insurgencies, a lot of guys got killed is because of him. Now, a lot of that has its tendrils being placed in Syria, and just like Adam said, um, you know, a lot of the Syrian civil war owes its success to Iranian and Russian advisors providing logistical and military capability where otherwise the Arabs would have suffered 
tremendous losses. So I, I'm very confident that, uh, you know, if it hadn't been for them, Assad would have been out of power a long time ago, just like Gaddafi. Um, but aside from that, the same thing is happening with the Houthis. And just to add to Han's point, uh, just beginning with these cruise missiles, they actually successfully struck um, a, a destroyer of the U.S. Navy. And the U.S. Navy regularly interdicts arms shipments and caches from Iran to the Houthis. And in fact, a lot of those munitions and arms shipments were shipped to Ukraine <laughs> when they were caught. So it's very interesting dynamic that's going on. And it should show you the interconnectedness between the conflict that's happening in the Middle East, the conflict that's happening in the Ukraine, and the conflict that's going to arise in the Southeast China Sea. But please continue. You make a good point that, um, you know, first of all, Ukraine and the Middle East really aren't all that far from each other. I mean, you know, it's not like we're talking about the the distance between <laughs> Ukraine Brazil is and on Iran. the Black Sea, you know, right by yeah, Turkey. I mean, yeah, you know, there's really not that. You know, there's only a few countries in between Iran and and Ukraine or Yemen and Ukraine or Israel and Ukraine, like. These countries are fairly close by. And historically, Ukraine did tremendous amounts of business with the Middle East. Huge amounts of shipments of uh, foodstuffs, agricultural products, machinery, scrap metal, all kinds of things. So it stands to reason that Ukraine actually has business relationships in, in that region. So it's not surprising that you might see the flow of arms back and forth. I think that there was there was quite a bit of rumors early on in the when the war broke out in uh, in, uh, in in Israel that somehow uh, Hamas had gotten its hands on uh, some kind of uh, laundered weapons through Ukraine. I don't think that 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 turned out to be true, uh, but it was certainly believable. Like you know, I, you know, at the first I heard it was like, yeah, you know good chance that's that's probably you know flip a coin that's probably accurate like sounds plausible to me they're not that far from each other uh you know ukraine has business relationships in that area historically you know traffic getting out of the black sea is a little blocked right now and it's challenging for ukraine to get shipments out but they can still do it so it's not all that unsurprising that you will see this flow of weapons back and forth even still uh, despite you know, some of the blockades going on in Ukraine, um, but I was the other point I was alluding to in the Middle East was that um, you know similar to the role that that Persia played sort of in the background, you know, providing supplies, providing weaponry um, during the Peloponnesian War, that's their involvement effectively inside of the Ukrainian War. You know, Iran is you know. I don't know if you can call them an active participant. I guess you can. They're an active participant in the Ukrainian war for the first time in, what, 1,500, 2,000 years. Iran is involved in a war in the European theater. Uh, Has this happened in the last millennia? You know, this is sort of an an incredible thing. There are Iranian advisors on the ground, allegedly, inside of eastern Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So you actually have the Iranians playing a part in the European theater for the first time, certainly in you know, modern Iranian history, if not for a thousand years. I, I recall maybe four or five years ago a boast about how peaceful 
the Persians are as a people going something like this, that the Persians have not offensively attacked anyone in the past, like 500 something years. I don't remember the exact number, but it was like this That's really dumb point that like they're these peace lovers that only defend themselves. And I, I can't ignore what they've been doing lately, that's, but also well, that's, over, that's, ever since the U.S. went to Iraq, at least that's when I became aware of their involvement in that region. It's it's not really true. I mean, they're they've been funding stuff been, for a long time. There's been there's been dozens of of conflicts. Historically, you know, Persia has had huge amounts of incursions deeper into Central Asia. It's it's fought numerous wars against you know, dynasties and, and rulers within the Indian subcontinent and in the Indus Valley. This is, you know, they've fought plenty of conflicts. That kind of stuff, by the way, is like this really goofy. Uh, I mean, well, I think, first of all, some of it's like paid for by the Iranian government and, you know, hats off to them, I guess. But uh, press TV or, or whatever it is. Um, but some of that is this is these lines that are kind of parroted by like American leftists. And it goes back to not even just the left. I mean, I'm not going to say exactly who I'm thinking of because I, I don't know if memory served me completely accurately, but I'm pretty sure where I heard that from was somebody on the dissonant, right? And they're, they're pretty well known and not stupid, (laughs) but they, they were saying things like that. And I don't know. We, we, we all need to, you know, examine our assumptions sometimes. Do people forget yeah. the do people forget the whole existence of like it's <laughs> like like two hundred years of war between the Mughals and and the Persians within India like you know <laughs> like the Iranian dynasties well, effectively invading parts of India like come forget on get like, that even as as uh, near as eighteen hundreds I mean the the Persians were regularly fighting the Russians in the Caucasus yeah. I mean, Azerbaijan and the territory of Armenia was part of the uh, Persian Sultanate, or rather, the Persians shot him. Sorry, I'm going to get roasted by some Persian on the internet. But point being is, um, you know, this is something that a lot of countries do since you know the Roman Empire is always uh, framing yourself as a defender, always never the aggressor. It's it's a PR stunt for you know the majority of societies always, especially the ones that bear the brunt of uh, you know cost of war they always want to frame themselves as the, the defender because it's really hard for whatever reason to sell an offensive war i mean the, the truth is i mean it's just like the united states it's like you know fdr goading the uh, imperial japanese to attack so that way we were framed as a you know basically we were attacked and thus we have this kind of upsurge of patriotic fervor jingoism that gets war support. It's the same thing for the Iranians. And it's the same thing for every other country. I mean, I'm sure the Russians feel the same way. The Ukrainians feel the same way. Everyone's trying to frame themselves as defenders of some sort or another because it's really hard to, you know, send millions of men to their death if it's not really necessary, if it's all about, you know, uh, going out for glory or for territorial acquisition or what it, what, what it may be, whatever it may be. Only Israelis and Yemenis can pull off, like, you know, selling offensive war. <laughs> like, both those factions currently actually well, and, are and the, uh, openly, the, our greatest you know, allies in the U.S. Congress sold it, I think, in 2003, the preemptive strike. <laughs> right, concept. yes. Yeah. The, the <laughs> we got to go in before he comes here, or whatever the line was. Or, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, you're now right. watch I mean, this drive. <laughs> watch this drive. Uh, yeah. You know, nobody nobody likes to be the, the, the aggressor, but you know, this this take that like Iran oh Iran, it, it's this you know, magical place of hippies and flowers. Like give me a break. I don't think the Iranians actually see themselves that way. It's very it's just sort of, you know, uh, it's constructive. He'd probably be ob- offended. <laughs> right. You, you know, I think it's it's very constructive obfuscation on their part to it, just to sort of muddy the waters. And, and I don't blame them. Everybody does it. You know, the Israelis do it. You know, it, everybody does that kind of thing. But um, at any right. level, the, the notion that, that, that the Iranians have, have not been engaged in offensive conflicts uh, before is uh, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. <laughs> yeah. In their, in their, you know, even in the post medieval history, they, they have done plenty of that. They haven't always been very successful, but they definitely have made many attempts. And, you know, the core of the Iranian plateau, but, you know, but the core of Iranian identity or the Persian identity is actually remarkably small. Most of the border regions of Iran today are basically, are, you know, maybe not majority inhabited, or some of them are, but certainly the plurality of people in these border regions are not Persian, do not see themselves as Persian necessarily, you know, don't even speak Farsi day to day. So this is already in its current state, a sort of active empire over, you know, Baluchistan, over southern, the southern Azeris, you know, numerous other people. So, and Iran has been, you know, on the receiving end of massive losses before. You know, as as a civilization, they know what it's like to lose. Samarkand is probably the, one of the greatest examples. You know, a city that is now sitting in Uzbekistan, and was sort of taken from them by the Turks when they invaded Central Asia. That is a Persian city, uh, you know, completely a a, per, a a a centerpiece of Persian civilization that is no longer theirs. Um, you know, probably for good. You know, Hans, like I think you're you're touching exactly. I guess what I'll, I'll explicate what you're implicating is is effectively I think every virile person or virile individual and here's the Nietzschean in me is always trying to have a certain will to power always trying to expand your borders your power your your self you know your dynamism if that makes sense even on a national level and I think um, under the banner of Islam since the 1979 Islamic revolution in Persia this has become more pronounced um, I think in reality we confuse especially us here who are sitting at the uh, the table of war if that makes sense we always take things at face value and we come from assumptions especially if you live in the west and the united states we come from assumption of pacifism and uh, free trade and a liberal paradigm right we're trying to maximize peace and uh, prosperity however i think the reality is and what the ancients allude to us is that the, the the cold heart of reality is nature and nature is always seeking to expand expand our power expand our resources expand our ourself our family and so on and so forth and so what we're seeing now is just this kind of finally this un this, the freeing of the world a kind of power vacuum that happened after the 1991 communist implosion and uh, we're seeing this kind of emergent faction happening and it's very refreshing for people such as myself who are warmongers or whatever, but I don't consider myself a warmonger. I just think I'm more sanguine about war. However, w- what I want to uh, emphasize is that Iran has as much imperial ambitions as we do, as any other country does. And I think 
Hans is absolutely correct is about kind of having this Persian irredentism. And as late as the 1900s, the lingua franca of that area of the world was Persian, even into India. I'm sure you know, Kipling, for instance, was actually fluent in Persian and a lot of the Middle East as well. So it, it is one of those things that uh, we should be considerate of is that the Persians have a self-perception of world ruling empire. They have an imperial vision of themselves. They have the self-confidence to expand and they have the will to. That's something I think in the West we, we're coming to grips with this nihilism um, this issue with Bolshevism or communism within the West, which is undermining our will to impose ourselves upon the world. I'm sure you guys are seeing now that there's a huge recruitment crisis in the United States Armed Forces. I don't know if you're aware of the transition between the woke, um, where, where it's called, quote-unquote, woke recruitment ads to now. You yeah, know, yeah. It's white, a bunch, bunch of good, good old boys from the South. Exactly. Doing airdrops and doing <laughs> cool stuff. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. But it's interesting that even then, recruitment standards or recruitment goals have not been met. And it's becoming so problematic, quote unquote, prob- I hate using that word. They've ruined that term, but it's become so problematic. It's a, we can't even stand up our defensive units. So, for instance, we actually don't have the manpower necessary to hypothetically defend against a Mexican incursion. Of course, that's never going to happen, but that's an, it's incredibly Hypothetical? Because... <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I mean an armed one, a conventional one. What I'm trying to oh, say I think they're armed. is that... <laughs> I think I, this one is kind of armed, too. Are you kidding me? I'm trying to be a the, little the bit... The Texas uh, National Guard is, is, is down there with like, yeah, guns mounted on speedboats. Yeah, weren't the, the cartels shooting at Border Patrol? I mean, oh, yeah. They were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. They were. I mean, they are currently. That It's an ongoing crisis. Of course, we have to look away. You know, we can only care about borders that are a thousand miles away, not the one our border. It's totally different. doesn't count. But in any case, um, I, I think just going back to Persia, I think there's this huge vacuum of power that's been a huge mistake of 2003 invading into Iraq and the ham-handedness of the neocons and the ham-handedness of the neoliberals is that they're not they don't have the say what you want about Kissinger. He is a genius when it comes to diplomacy. He was able to, you know, play the Soviets off the PRC, the Vietnamese off the PRC, contain Persian expansionism as well as Baathism. So basically he was the reason why things were so relatively stable. Now, with him gone and now the neocons are in power of the highest, you know, for levers of power and you see Bolton for instance pushing for war just like in 2003 we're strategically losing everything you know our our pull on if you care about the american state we're strategically losing our international hold so africa i know it might seem like a backwater to us but that's the majority of our natural resources are coming from rare earth minerals and so on a lot of those countries that you saw on the news that are having coup d'etats and so on and so forth they're happening because of wagner group and because of prc forces that are helping stage these um, coup d'etats which will align them to BRICS which is a big deal and it's symptomatic of the ham-handedness of the State Department worldwide but I'll leave it there I want to hear what you guys have to say about that Uh, just a couple things Um, when you talk about Africa being the source of our resources I mean that's true for one in particular cobalt 
that comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm not aware of any others that are that are exclusive to Africa. I think there's plenty of other sources that we get currently and also potentially critical minerals. Uh, and then certainly just the, on the general commodity side of things, well, to, you know, to there's lots of alternative suppliers, but, um, it's not so, yeah, it's not so much to, to get their resources is to deny it's to corner the market, the international market, which is significant for us. Well, I know China is, I think more heavily involved. I don't know exactly to what degree, but, uh, they're certainly more politically involved with the Africans explicitly. And I think a lot of that is because they've sourced a lot of their their natural resources from Africa, whereas the United States has trade arrangements with other parts of the world that I think are much more reliable. And so I think the Chinese are trying to establish themselves as the primary players there to have kind mm-hmm. of a relative counterbalance to what we have maybe. But um, what, what I was also going to ask you, because um, I don't know uh, at all, but I do know that Wagner's uh, head Pergosian was was uh, killed uh, a couple months ago, and so I don't know what Wagner is even doing anymore. I mean, are they even still viable? Like, who's running it? Like, is it just the Kremlin now? Like, what, what, what's going on? I got there, the inside know? scoop for you. I got I got it for you. I got the intel. So stand by. So what happened? So for those of you that don't know, basically what happened was Pergosians was in constant conflict with the MOD. For those of you that don't know, the MOD is the Ministry of Defense for Russia. Uh, the way that it works in Russia is there's a lot of venal competition, interdepartmental competition that doesn't happen in the West because we have the rule of law out there. It's very boorish and like it's very strange. But basically, the MOD was refusing to resupply with ammunition to Wagner because Prigozhin had this personal vendetta against the oligarch who is the Minister of Defense head. He's basically the uh, the chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Russia, right? And so he was offed in a, in a private plane with his second and third in command. They're both killed, and that was a decapitation, right? Because he was trying to do, well, he was threatening a coup d'etat against Putin, which could not be excused. Uh, for a number, for a couple months there, they were out of commission, but now they're being reformed under an official branch of the interior troops of Russia. So now it's yeah, less so of a PMC. Kremlin, basically. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry um, for the extraneous detail, but I felt like it was important. No, uh, that's so. So they not only killed Prigozhin, but his second and third in command. Is that right? That that's correct. Oh, it wasn't very smart name. of them to fly on the same plane. I, you know. That's the funny thing is that like it feels almost as though they expected to be absolved, knowing Putin as well as I know Putin, I guess from you know the West and reading about his biography and so on. This guy is a KGB agent. He the one thing he cares about the most is loyalty and to threaten. I mean, even if you weren't Putin, I mean, to threaten your authority and your power like that so blatantly would have second and third order effects, which would be the unraveling of russia so he had to off them and i can't believe that these guys were so naive to put three of these head honchos in a private plane honestly (laughs) the the whole thing doesn't make any sense i mean frankly russians in general don't make a lot of sense to me but they (laughs) they had some notion that they're going to make a march on moscow and then suddenly putin's going to lay down i I don't i don't know what the heck like is this for real like so i don't think anybody really understands what these guys were actually thinking it, it, it seems very crazy 
as much as I hate Francis Fukuyama, as much as I hate him, I, I, I have a personal vendetta against him. I read one book by him, the, you know, the last man. And when I was 15, I've had a vendetta end of, against end him. End of history. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. The same bullshit. But at the end of the day, he's right when it comes to, um, as far as, uh, political power structuring the way that russia has its political power structured is that it's very centralized so prigozhin at the time had roughly two divisions worth of men on a column headed towards moscow if he had taken moscow he would have taken basically the central nervous system of the entire political landscape if he had taken putin and a number of other head honchos there effectively he would have placed himself in power in the united states this wouldn't happen because um power is diffuse you know what I'm saying? So, like, even if you were able to take DC, for instance, the political mechanism wouldn't be compromised, and so that's the difference, and that's why it was such a a threat to Moscow because he was going straight for the jugular because there was a jugular. If that makes sense. Yeah, I understand the target priority, but I don't understand the expectation on the Wagner Group or whoever uh, Prigozhin was leading in that coup attempt. I don't understand their expectation that they would achieve victory. I, to, to I, it just seems insane. I, I, I think know. he was trying to threaten for a negotiation. I think he was just trying to play. But, basically, he was trying to threaten with and what? Use it with as what power? Uh, what power does he have? I don't. He he's <laughs> he's a contractor. Or I will off you. <laughs> it's literally like very very mafia esque. But, but, but I know it doesn't come to our brain, especially Anglo-Saxons. It doesn't register. But I think it's very. It's as simple as a, a mafia whack you know what i mean it's really like i don't know like, are, are they just gamblers or something because it doesn't seem like a very good bet to me <laughs> well you have to remember I don't a, lot get of these it. Men, a lot of these men uh they came out of the fall of the soviet union they're all criminally organized men so for instance prigozhin yeah. himself he was a major i guess potentate apparatchik in leningrad and slowly bought up shares and connections and formed his political base and basically became a personal advisor to Putin and over time created, you know, businesses that surrounded the PMC yeah. world. So I know it sounds so strange because it seems like it's so simplistic, but sometimes reality is as simple and ridiculous as it seems, you know? Well, I know that the the Russian power blocks are kind of concentrated in these like uh, gangster kingdoms basically and yes you have Putin now who's the biggest gangster but since the 90s there's never really been anything like this and the conditions for it were Russia was bogged down I mean like what was like I know that the Russian revolution basically got kicked off because Russia was in a in a really bad place because of World War One. And the the soldiers were pissed off and the peasants and everybody. But as far as I could tell, the majority of the Russian people are at least generally on the side of the war. And I don't understand what premise Wagner had or Prigozhin had to really expect support beyond his cronies, given all the other weird power blocks in that place. I don't know. I, I think I've, yeah. I've just, I'm just repeating myself, but it just, it's just, it's just very odd to me that he thought he, I think could, he could win. The best thing I've thought up and I've talked to my friends about 
who've you know worked at this kind of thing is that he basically was hoping he would incite a general coup d'etat against putin i think that was maybe the biggest chip on the uh, board so to speak the card to to threaten um because of course he himself alone wasn't an okay uh, but what, what he was he what, undermine... did, did the cia or somebody put him up to it because uh, oh, you yeah. know th- there's been Plenty of these guys from the chess player Kasparov to God knows who else. I mean, I, I, I'm picturing this man. I don't remember his name, but there've been, there've been a few uh, people who have been these opposition leader types, uh, you know, people, a man of the people. Um, and they've led these kind of opposition parties against Putin. And they've all, they've all been shut down. Um, you know, Kordakovsky was, was, imprisoned after he basically started making uh murmurings about politics and he was the head of yukos the oil company now defunct mm-hmm. oil company that was uh mm-hmm. bought up in this rigged auction that the uh, the kremlin set up and so the the history of this stuff is not good against putin and it just the track record doesn't imply that this is this is smart and so i this is why i'm wondering you know was there an additional incentive added whether a carrot or a stick by an external party i theorized the cia you said yes i'm not sure if you're if you know that for certain or if you think it's just plausible but um i'm just i'm just trying to figure it out it just still doesn't make sense so i think of course i mean the cia is actively involved especially mi6 so Mm. the mi6 has a lot of inroads with russian society i don't know why it is the case but I've spoken to a number of Russian friends of mine, and basically it's not the CIA that's been their main enemies, MI6, hmm. which has actually been the most efficacious clandestine that's interesting. organization to undermine Russia. Well, they used and to call it the so- Great Game back in the Cold War, and I don't know if they, uh, they've they basically just enjoyed continuing that, that effort. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of this stuff is, sadly, I think a lot of it is for the amusement of a lot of these people who don't actually put the, their own children's lives at risk. You know, they think they, they, it's just a power game to them. It's a game, the great game. Um, that's my cynical take on a lot of this stuff, but the, um, I didn't know about the MI6 having such prominence. That's interesting. No, it, it is. And it continues to be actually working for us. So I, I'm assuming that he was manipulated in some way. I mean, there's no way that he had, all that information because CIA probably would have informed Prigozhin of the opening, if that makes sense. Basically, they would have told him, hey, if you wanted to move on this guy, he's in this current state where he doesn't have the military readiness to react, which Putin did not, by the way, when the coup d'etat was underway, or rather an attempted coup. Basically, he had no significant forces in Moscow to function as a blocking force. Mm -hmm. The few aviation groups which actually did conduct some strikes on the column on the way as a warning and actually killed a number of um, uh, Wagner soldiers, uh, you know, they weren't enough. They were only enough to kind of send a message, but it wasn't strong enough if it were determined attack to seize Moscow. It would have been easily taken. The FSB was the only force in town. The FSB, of course, is not a militarized force. I mean, they're basically our FBI. Worst case scenario, they have like, you know, some conventional small arms SWAT team type deal, but they don't have the mass necessary for conventional exchange. And that's why maybe he thought that it would have been 
<laughs> I don't know. It's a gamble in hell, but I think he played yeah. his cards and he, he saw that he lost, you know? Okay. Well, who knows? We'll, we'll never really know because he's dead. But um, speaking of the CIA, and I apologize if we're kind of going off track here, but all, uh, while we're on the topic of Russia, I think it's an interesting and important component in what's going on. Um, what what happened to Edward Snowden? I, I remember when you, Russia invaded eastern Ukraine, he basically pulled himself out of the conversation on Twitter or social media in general. Um, I, I know I saw a tweet on, on Twitter at least, but um, basically saying, you know, my assumptions about where this was going to go were wrong. And that's all I'm going to say. And I haven't really paid attention or looked frankly into what he says. I never really trusted him to be honest, but uh, he's in Russia and I don't know what his status is. I don't know if he said anything. I don't know if uh, he's part of a plot. <laughs> I think who who cares basically uh, at this point. I mean, he's he's sort of served his purpose, but um, yep. I don't know if you have any thoughts on the guy because I, I that's another one I never quite understood. He he just didn't he he doesn't seem to be his story doesn't completely add up. I I think there's there's a possibility, if not a plausibility, that he's he's working for some intelligence agency and I don't know that for certain, but the fact that he leaked it and the way he did and the way that the story got, got attention, it was mm-hmm. odd to me because, uh, you know, William Binney was an NSA insider and he basically said the same thing years before Snowden and he actually got arrested by the FBI and he, he got, he got, he got in trouble. Um, whereas Snowden, somehow gets all this stuff out to the press conveniently. And then he escapes somehow to Hong Kong where nobody can find him. Like I, it's a small place, first of all. And second of all, since the cold war and since the British have been there, probably Hong Kong, as far as I know, is one of the most heavily surveilled locations in the planet. So if you're walking through an airport and there's a, there's a flight manifest and, facial recognition software how is he not picked up i mean i I just so that that that's strange too and so i don't know i I just don't i don't get that guy i I never really understood his his my personal my personal read on him is basically he was successful i think he was genuine about his reasons i think he i think a lot of history sometimes is banal and it is how it appears and i think that governments react based on the calculus of the moment. I think the PRC, since, of course, the Cold War, has become incredibly powerful and and strong. And even in Hong Kong at that time, they had the kind of pull that they otherwise wouldn't have when the British were still there. Yeah, well, China China was obviously the the government in charge. I mean, the Beijing, not not the Hong Kong government, but... Right. Um, no, you're no, right. I guess I mean, what I'm trying to say, what, what I'm trying to say, just to finish my thought here, is just basically, I think he's really just a liberal, yeah. and and, and, a, and a genuine one. And he was he was alarmed with the the kind of incursion into American citizens' privacy and rights, and he did what he did. And I think he just made the most of his situation. And the governments also at the time, Russia and and the PRC, made the most of their situation. Right. And I think the reality is the reason why he's taken him himself out of the conversation is because I think he just genuinely doesn't support russia i think he's right. there because he doesn't right. want to be rot, rotting next to uh, ted kaczynski you know what i mean 
well, he's dead, but, uh, or so we're told. Uh, right. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ted passed away this year. Rest in peace. <laughs> well, you could say a lot that's about not him. Too controversial to say. No, but... you could say a lot about him, but um, he he had a lot to say, and so if, if nobody's ever actually looked into it, I'd, I'd encourage it. Um, well, let's see what what else is going on. I mean, so I I, 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 I I don't I don't know how to interpret all this stuff because my entire life there's always been some kind of geopolitical problem, but when there's all these disparate locations popping off like this, that's sort of new to me. Um, you know, I remember the Middle East, the war on terror, the Cold War was a thing when I was young, but there was never any major conflict after Vietnam, um, unless you count the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, but I, I'm talking from the U.S. perspective and the Western perspective in general. Um there seems to be a lot going on. So and the potential for more. So that's that's what's troubling. Yes. So I think so just to I guess recenter the conversation, I think we look at so we have to have like a thousand mile perspective in the air, right? Like these things are interconnected in a way that's not obvious to many. They feel as though it's it's all isolated. But if we take the perspective of geopolitical states and their mutual interests and effectively their competitions with, of course, the United States, which is a hegemonic power right now, ultimately they're all interconnected. I mean, not just in material sense, but a political alignment. Um, you know, so what's happening in Gaza, and this is my personal, my personal like uh, opinion as far as it goes, is that Russia wanted to divert America's attention away from Ukraine from the Lend-Lease that we have to Ukraine, which is the only thing that's keeping things at a stalemate in the Ukraine for munitions, for hardware, and so on, and put it right at wait, the Wait, wait, wait. Th- those are loans? <laughs> yeah, it's Lend-Lease <laughs> loans that we'll never get back. I know I know. Zelensky keeps saying he's going to pay us back, but, I mean, does anyone actually believe that? Like, I, I, I don't... Well, his recent, uh, his recent uh, public appearance, I mean... It was like out of a 1930s cartoon. I mean, I, I've never seen a man <laughs> act so Jewish. I, I thought he was doing like he was doing a comedy bit. You know, he literally like, he was doing like the finger rubbing as he was talking and kind of holding his hand up. He's like, okay, you know, if you if we can't give you, you can't give us money now, you give us the credits, and we pay you back. You know, <laughs> after the war, you know, like we pay you back at some point. Oh man, and. You know, it was it was so on the nose. I I'm almost convinced that this is a very elaborate sort of Andy Kaufman style comedy bit, <laughs> and that in like a year or two, Zelensky <laughs> is going to reveal the whole thing was was for laughs. <laughs> well, he's certainly going to be in the Guinness Book cost. of World Record for <laughs> highest body count of dark comedies. I mean, yeah, that's because for sure. you know there are times when when you know Zelensky does things, and I'm like, this guy's winking at us. He's well, he like, is a comedian. He is a comedian. Right. I, I, it's just a I long. He's having. Yeah. It's like the equivalent of the aristocrats joke. I don't know if you guys know the comedian world, but. That's that's basically um, it's actually not a joke. It's basically a joke on the audience, and 
you 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 can actually say whatever you want um and the point is actually just to make it a really long rambling story that is actually kind of um sort of like how sam hyde used to do his stand-up he'd basically like mock the audience and then at the end you'd say something about the aristocrats tying it all together somehow but it, it was all just sort of a a joke on everybody uh and the punchline is you so who knows man <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it, it would be a hell of a joke. I mean, it would be so obvious, so awful. I mean, I, I feel like it should never be told because I think a lot of people would commit suicide. But but I would say this. I would say that effectively, I mean, it's unprecedented that we've had two carrier strike groups in the eastern Mediterranean. Even at the height of the Cold War, we didn't even have that kind of presence. And, I mean, I think it's a masterful stroke by Putin. And Putin has a lot of inroads with Hamas. And it has a lot of, for instance, a lot of the Lend-Lease that we sent to Ukraine was interdicted and reshipped to Hamas, which is being used to attack Israel right now. It's, it's very interesting. But Hezbollah is obviously another pressure point, too, that's fixing IDF forces in the north. So, it's like I said, it was before, I mean, these conflicts are interconnected in a way that I think most people don't appreciate. Okay. I, I want to drill down on the, on the Israel Hamas thing. Cause you, you can't not talk about this, but what, what you just said was, uh, it was a masterstroke by Putin. I'm assuming you're talking about the carrier presence being so concentrated. I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, I don't know how he necessarily no, no, no. invoked that, but I mean, go ahead. He's diverting attention away from Ukraine. Ah, so, for instance, a lot of artillery shells, oh, okay. and a lot of uh, JDAMs and stuff like that, and a lot of munitions are being sent okay. to Israel because God knows. Yeah, no, how, that that how would much be stuff they need. That apparently. would be a very, very smart thing to do for them because I mean, yeah, the the reason Zelensky was was begging for cash is, I mean, I think he's whether he knew it before or he's just looking at the the raw data feed at the moment. But American tension span is is pretty short, and so there's all these memes you know about like well what 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 flag is the uh, the npc gonna have on his twitter thing next <laughs> i mean the first it was you know masks and or no no first it was blm antifa and it became the mask you know for covid the jab and then it became ukraine flag and now it's hamas right so you Zelensky is basically uh, uh you know he wants his attention back so, you know, I, I think I think it makes complete sense that yeah, Putin would encourage a distraction from the fight that they're in, because let's face it, this is more important to Russia than it is to the United States and maybe maybe not as much for Europe because Europe's right in the next door to, to Russia. But this conflict in Ukraine is certainly more important to Russia than it is to the United States, obviously. Mm-hmm. And well, I think the numbers yeah. don't also imply that as well. I, I heard a statistic that Russia just upped its defense budget by 68%, which is pretty wild. Um, and it's still, I don't know, that probably makes it uh, still one third the size of the United States' spending. Um, mm-hmm. And China's pretty close to the U.S. at this point. But it's still significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well. I did have a question uh, that was more technical in nature, but please respond. Uh. Uh, Just quickly, I'll just add that. Uh, Basically, remember when the Ukraine war broke out, the majority of the West was on the side of the Ukraine, with very small exceptions. I think it was like 80% pro-Ukraine. Notice now, however, 
the conflict in Israel has split the West in half. No, it's fascinating. Notice it's yeah. split the left in half, and that is probably the most uh, destabilizing. Uh, so a lot of people consider, and this is why the PRC is amazing at modern warfare, is because they don't just take into account the conventional concerns of warfare, but they also are getting at the crux of what war is about. It's the people, right? The polity. And what Russia is doing right now by shifting the focus in the Israeli-Hamas conflict or Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that he's splitting the contingents, the coalition in the West, which is, of course, the liberal, neoliberal, neocon divide. Well, and that you're, you're assuming he knew that was the outcome. I mean, perhaps he had maybe somehow not. made some kind of assessment from social media or something, or maybe they have like some cutout that does polling. I don't know. How would they, how would he know that though? I mean, I think he happened to correctly notice that there was going to be a distraction, but I don't know how he was necessarily going to know how the public would perceive that distraction. I think that's a little bit harder. Well, no, the United States actually, even starting with Barack Obama, for instance, has have been very vocal. I mean, maybe not necessarily in the news outlets, but very vocal about being a pro-Palestinian force. Uh, the Democratic Party has actually been very strongly anti-Zionist. Yes. Surprisingly yes. so. Yes. And I think he knew that. And also the wonders of the Internet. The Russians have the same capability, if not parity with us. And I think they understood that the constituent coalition within the West yeah. was a large Islamic or at least a large minority yeah. of Islamic forces, as well as, you know, the elites, which are predominantly pro-Zionist. I, I think it doesn't take a genius yeah. to really think. No. Yeah. Fine. You make a good case. I, I think it's plausible that they would have a, a reasonable expectation there. I, it's not a guarantee, obviously, but um that's very interesting. Uh, what I was going to ask about the uh, technical side of things was um, these carrier groups. And this is something that's been bantied around for a while in the, uh, I, I guess, the dissident right. I, I don't even know if that's the right term anymore, but whatever. It, it's just the disaffected right maybe is a better better way to put it. Basically, people who uh, don't understand where the country's gone and uh you know, guys that like Matt Bracken, I don't know if you know who that is. He's a, I think he was a, either a SEAL or a Marine. Um, he's pretty, pretty prominent on social media. He's written a lot of books um, about uh, speculative fiction of the United States breaking up between the Hispanic Southwest and the rest and other scenarios. Uh, but guys like him will talk about these hypotheticals as these kind of turning points or tipping points about what might really be catalysts for a major shift in either public sentiment or public policy. And one of the things he's mentioned a lot is what might happen to America on those dimensions if a U.S. carrier group was sunk. And I've heard this from other people as well, that that would be a really catastrophic image for most Americans to process. And most people I don't think would know what to think other than that. That's frightening. Uh, it's a definite blow to the American image of having this superpower status, obviously, but the implications for that I think are more complicated and I'm not even asking about that because it's that's probably a really long discussion and 
probably not very fruitful given how speculative it would be, but unless you have something to say, but what I was going to ask was what is the vulnerability of these carrier groups? Because I know that you can see them. They're not submarines, obviously, but you have to be close to them. And if you have a network of spy planes like China does, or have satellites like a lot of military countries do, you can maybe pick them up, but I don't know how easy it is. And with cloud cover and all that stuff, I don't know the numbers and statistics on how, how concealable they are. So the fact that we know that there's two carrier groups in the Middle East, I don't think is an accident. I'm sure that's Pentagon or state department or combination policy to make that known to yeah. sort of send a message obviously to the military forces in that region uh that's pretty obvious that that's being broadcast but there's other groups that are not i mean i don't know how many of i, I think what are there nine or something like that how many are actually in the water at any given time does that fluctuate or is it always the same number and then i don't think those numbers mm-hmm or their, their whereabouts are exactly known. And I think that's, that's for security reasons. But my question is how easy is it to find them if the U S government doesn't want you to find them? That's my question. It's very easy, very easy, very easy because of the fact that they're so large and because all that you need, especially with the advancement of smart munitions, you know, because of GPS guided munitions that we'll have to hit them. But I I mean to, to locate them is, is the first thing. Same thing. Um, you know, Russia, I think, obviously, the Chinese have it, or excuse me, the PRC has it, but I think Iran might have a satellite as well. But it's very easy to spot a carrier strike group. I mean, it's because this carrier strike group is not just a carrier. It's also, you know, the it's everything. Yeah, yeah, the they, got, they got a bunch the, of the support vessels. Um, precisely. Okay, so you're saying satellites. All right, but satellites don't have an eye on every part of the planet at once. So and you can't really steer them; they they mm-hmm. run out of fuel if if you tried. So you have either a huge number of them uh, looking everywhere at once, or you get lucky, or you guess based on your previous images that you picked up from your satellite, and then you maybe send out a plane or something like that. But I don't think it's um, I don't think it's like logging into uh, spysatellite.gov, you know, and, and looking up everywhere on the planet in real time. I don't think most countries have that capability. I think the U.S. probably does, but, um, you know, with the National Reconnaissance you know how you do it? Organization. Uh, how's that? With spies? <laughs> That's the old way to do no. it. <laughs> but. No, no, it's actually very easy. Um, basically, you can do this awesome. So um, when there's air airplane traffic right? oh, okay. there's this tracker you, com, com you traffic see, you mean yep yeah, exactly that, that and then you sense. basically yeah. you can see for instance there's a poseidon aircraft that's does uh electronic warfare and you can see where it's hovering and you can understand yeah. the radius okay. from the carrier that it would be launched and basically you can yeah. triangulate and you can yeah. call in until sure. you know sure. so it's very simple actually it's a lot simpler than people think um, I think that there's a reason for it. Obviously, ostensibly, the Joint Chiefs of Staff wants to present force, and we're you know we're going to bring down the hammer on these guys if they act against our strongest allies. But the reality is, I think what's happening is that we're trying to go to strike against American assets, especially if we're <laughs> if they were to successfully strike a, a 
a nuclear reactor, massive well, Nimitz class. Well, who's we? I mean, what what contingent in the U.S. government is wanting this? The neocons, probably, yeah. right? But yeah, the neocons, like, Bolton is the, is the, types. Okay, but but those are I don't even know what to call them. It's like the the Beltway lizard class. But like the, the <laughs> actual people in the Pentagon, do they actually want this? I mean, who, who do you think? Who do you think? Uh, they they hang out with of course right. yeah they, these are okay. these are the people that are actually in positive control at the highest levels of pentagon and <sighs> in pentagon city okay i think that ultimately they're a lot more cynical than people play them off to be and i mean i think they're hoping that the uh, you know syrians or whoever the iranians are stupid enough to strike you know or some rogue element of yeah. of Hezbollah to strike okay. one of their naval assets and justify an invasion well, what, what's Iran, the itching. what's to stop Mossad or the CIA from basically funding another ISIS to launch a uh, a tow missile equivalent at at a carrier and to basically blame it on the Iranians i mean like that is such an easy. easy scenario to envision um and then it's how do you simple. How do you stop that? I mean, because look, look, I'm not, I'm not pro or anti-war. I'm, I'm anti-stupid war, and the majority of the, this country's wars are pretty stupid. Um, you know, if we were, if we were fighting against the incursions on the southern border, I'd be there myself if I could. If mm-hmm. I, you know, didn't think I was going to get arrested by my own government. But um, the the problem is, you know, the the people that understand or at least try to understand this stuff are written off as cranks and conspiracy theorists and Alex Jones listeners and stuff like this. So they don't really get a lot of support in the political system. You know, this, this Vivek guy on the Republican side is kind of interesting because he's sort of, and you know, Robert F. Kennedy are, are kind of on the Democrat side. They're, they're kind of like examples of these anti war anti-establishment types that are quite popular, but they're, they're fought against by the establishment for, you know, a lot of reasons, but they are, and it's been going on all my life. And I don't know how you stop this stuff. I mean, you're, you're probably more pro war than me, but your perspective is, is what on this? Like, do you think that the U S is served by getting involved in these things? I, I don't see the national benefit here. I don't see it. I don't see it either. I think I'm when I'm. I guess I, I should elucidate. I mean, when I'm saying this, I'm I'm speaking from the perspective of neocon beltway, you know, Bolton dudes who are, are like itching for a war with Iran even before 2003. Like these people are freaks. You know what I mean? So I, I'm just trying to give that perspective and to explain why that might happen. You know what I mean? To entice. A Cassis Bella. Every time, every time I see John Bolton, I, I hear like the Beatles song playing. You know, like I am the walrus, <laughs> cuckoo, cuckoo. You sure are, buddy. <laughs> and everybody, everybody thinks that. And you know, the the self delusion of these people that they actually they get up there and they they go on these awful cable news programs where their ass is ki- kissed, and they they're so deluded in that Beltway vortex of delusion that they think that they're actually in some way and probably in other people's minds, they think that like they're perceived this way as helping. I I got news for you, buddy. Nobody buys your bullshit. 
And maybe they don't care, but if they do, if they have any ego at all, they should because people are fed up and disgusted. And, you know, count me I don't me think in. they care. I think here I'll give you some insight because I come from that world and I come from a family that comes from that world. And the it's just like you say, it, that entire environment, social environment is very incestuous. I mean, these people really – it's almost like there's an orb and they – they believe that the world is as as they kind of masturbate to themselves. It is. I hate to use that graphic, but it really is that way. They're so disco- disconnected with real life. At the end of the day, a lot of these generals that go to the Pentagon or whatever, what they want most in life is a directorship at Raytheon. And as much as that sound ridiculous from a libertarian, like old libertarian perspective of the military industrial complex, they just want money. It really is that simple. No, no, it's, it's about prestige. Also, it's not just money. I mean, money doesn't buy you, you know, if you go to Walmart, you're not going to get status. So, you know, having the ability to buy the entire (laughs) stock of a Walmart super center is meaningless to somebody who's reasonably wealthy and reasonably sophisticated. They want more and they want social status. They want prestige. They want their name on some wall somewhere in Washington. They, they, whatever it is, but they want to stay. They they want the equivalent of a statue. You know, you know, when the, the Roman generals would, you know, fight these campaigns to impress the other senators to quell their enemies and opponents in, in Rome, they would erect statues to themselves after their conquests or you know, force the slaves to build it at least. But it was like they want an edifice to their own greatness. And they do it at the expense of others, which is what's disgusting to me. Now, if they did it for the benefit of the people, that's a different conversation. But Well, to me, it's petty. I, I, I really resent that you made the allusion to the Romans because at least the Romans were manly <laughs> and, and martial people. But when they do it, they do it because they just they want they, you know we don't even have interesting warmongers where like the type in like latin america that want to become generalissimo of you know the united yeah, states yeah, they yeah, want to yeah. just be like director of raytheon and maybe get a plaque somewhere and that's like the height of glory to them it's, just it's my so point is it's it's petty. selfish ego is what my point is if they were doing yes. it again for i don't even know if this is even realistic historically but you you could see how the the country or the nation could benefit from one of these campaigns in theory, but this continual involvement at the cost of mainly treasure, but a lot of, you know, enough blood more, more than is necessary uh, to, to really no tangible benefit at all is, is really what's mind boggling. And it's only enabled by a reserve currency that is continuing to lose value and, you know, the national debt is, is in what, 30 trillion now. I mean, it's, it's disgusting. Um, and it's just the arrogance of these people that they're so unaware of how harmful they are. And they, they have the, they have the bravado to call themselves public servants where really what they should call them themselves is private self-interest is the exact opposite of a public servant. And, you know, I would add to this point, and it's part of the reason why I do my thing at Lance's Legion, is that I want to imbibe into the American citizenry this anti-boomer sentiment of selfishness, right? Statesmanship, the idea that you're doing things for the whole of a nation is completely anathema to the boomer generation. And luckily, they're on their way out. 
But that's something that the American spirit has to overcome, and it's something that I think is a cultural thread we have to rethread into the tapestry of our collective conscious. Because, I mean, like, I'm really sick and tired of hearing people saying that they're open-minded, and they're like, oh, yeah, I watch CNN some, sometimes, or vice versa. And it's just like, no, that is not the, the mental horizon of someone that does stuff for the benefit of a nation. We don't think in the ways that Romans did or, you know, modern Iranians did or, or do right now or whatever. I mean, maybe Hans can speak to this especially because, I mean, he's a aficionado in, in history, but even our self-conception of what is the good, of what is the common good, what is common, what is nation and so on, these things are the fundamental flaws of America as such now that even plagues people such as ourselves. So, you know, in this sphere is that we think of things in such small terms that we don't consider ourselves to want the common good or a nation. We don't even consider that. What we care about is money. Even when we argue about what's good for the nation, it comes down to, oh, we'll get richer. We'll get this or that. It's never about the, the core element of a soul, which is the self-fulfillment and prophecy of a people. You know what I mean? And I hope I'm not getting too like flowery with my language. I know you're a very brass tacks kind of guy, but that's fundamental. No, no, it's cool. You, you re represent represent your worldview. That that's that's totally acceptable yeah. and, and welcomed on this show. We we want you to tell us what you think. Yeah, I apologize because I get shit sometimes from my friends, but I think it's something that you kind of have to have your heart in the sleeve about and maybe push for maybe a change because our founding fathers, I mean, remember they even referred to Washington DC as new Rome and the, you know, Potomac yeah. as new Tiber. Well, our architect we architecture is, is no, um, it, it certainly supports that, that view. And I think that you don't really have to have much of an opinion about it. it it's arguably fact that there was this notion that the United States was, a and also a, a successor to Greece as well, I should add. But uh, just the architecture alone, I think, is is evidence of the intent behind those uh, those generations. Now, what's going on now? I mean, you could say it's it's the. So I was actually reading the that, Federalist but... Papers the other day, and John Quincy Adams actually referred um, to the Federalist and Anti-Federalist competition as fundamentally a, a competition between Rome and Athens. I'm glad that you actually pointed it out because it's exactly how the founding fathers perceived themselves mm -hmm. and their, in, their internal conflict was surrounding that self-perception. But it's funny though, that guy also thought that uh, Boston was going to become the new Sparta, but you know, it is what it is. That's fine. <laughs> P people can have their dreams. That's, that's, uh, that's part of what makes things happen is people have goals. But, um, while we're um, still talking, I, I think we, we need to maybe focus a little bit more on some of the on the ground stuff, just because um, because it is current and topical and relevant, and we could talk about sort of philosophy anytime. But if we don't talk about the stuff that's happening now, um, we we may not have a chance to later. So yeah, I it seems uh, to be salient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I wanted to maybe circle back to what you were talking about with, uh, Israel. And I mean, obviously the, the, to me, the, what's fascinating at the very least is just the amount of disagreement over that conflict. Whereas, as you point out with Ukraine, there was actually a lot of consensus, which is super fascinating, but I, and many others can talk about that stuff. Cause that's sort of civilian side things. You have a more military background and you were um, 
you were maybe going to talk to us about sort of the the ground strategies of maybe these forces. Yeah. Could you maybe talk about the actual just military strategies yeah. that's going on between these two two yeah. forces in Israel, Palestine? This is what this is what I waste my life doing. It's my obsession. So here here I go. But anyway, um, I think it's very interesting because what's happening now. The IDF is largely based around a mechanized force, and for you know if you're just an average Joe with an honest living, what that means is basically your army surrounds a highly technical and highly mechanized force, which includes tanks, APCs, all that kind of stuff that you think of things with tracks, mobile infantry. Um, But the idea is that you don't have a manpower heavy military. And obviously Israel does not have that. The majority of their conflicts from 74, 69, and all the other kind of um, conflicts they've had with the other Arab states surrounded conventional, conventional forces squaring off. Now, in those conventional exchanges, it was never the case that they were waging urban warfare, or at least they were doing so in a limited case. Now... In Gaza, which is very interesting, especially because of the innovations with ATGMs, uh, sixth-generation ATGMs, which is just basically anti-tank guided missiles, which is what you said, tow, tow missiles. Uh, the efficacy of uh, small drones, the efficacy of uh, you know uh, basically UAS, which is unmanned aerial systems for small. Uh, basically small irregular forces being able to leverage that uh, to their advantage is placed significantly combat power on their terms. Now, urban warfare is significant in the fact that urban warfare really kind of benefits the defender, especially because it evens the playing field between uh, advanced and irregular forces because it renders it moot. Um, And what I mean by that is basically if you look at the conflict in Chechnya, for instance, in 1994, I just had a thread about this on Twitter and I write on my substack, but which I give in detail and I'll give a a synopsis here. Uh, Basically, the mega cities, mega structures of today with skyscrapers, underground tunnels, as you're seeing in, in Gaza, metro stations and so on, they're leveraged as um, basically defensive structures, defensive architecture, which is actually giving the advantage to the defender a significant advantage. And a lot of conflict, which is happening within the urban theater, is always infantry on infantry forces. Of course, tanks and APCs provide direct fire coverage and help in some sense, but they're very vulnerable in those cases because, I mean, just think in your mind, if you're on top of a blown out three-story building, what you're able to do is with a very cheap munition or RPG or whatever, you're able to go down and shoot the weakest part of the tank where otherwise, if you're in an open field, you'd be facing the oblique armor, which would basically render your small munition of an RPG right. or something useless. Aren't they putting uh, cages now on the turrets? I mean, that might yes. be for drones as well, but um, I don't know if that stops an RPG. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, no, that vulnerability it's, is, it stops, is known. It stops the grenades. It stops the... Uh, people call it cope cages, but it's not really a cope cage because now with uh, UAVs and stuff, they can just fly over and if you have your hatches open, they can just drop a grenade and kill the entire crew inside of a very well, it's a stupid. It's a stupid term. I mean, every every <laughs> technology in war is a cope. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think an arms race means? I mean, anyway, go ahead, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. It, it's just one of those, uh, they call it the NAFO gang, but it's basically, it's just it's propaganda. But any case, uh, what I'm trying to say, though, is that the IDF has actually faced significant casualties, which are 
they're actually at first the exchanges between Hamas and IDF were suppressed in the media, but now, or rather, they were made explicit by the IDF as far as who died and who's wounded and so on. And now they've gone silent. And that should be incredibly indicative to you which way the conflict is is basically shifting. And of course, the IDF is making territorial gains within the city of Gaza. However, they don't want to explicate the amount of casualties being being incurred on them, especially against a force which is very irregular. It's like, you know, these guys are very, I mean, of course they're highly trained and they, you know, they're trained by by the idea, uh, excuse me, so, the, the Iranian forces. What is the IDF's goal, first of all? To be frank with you, I think, I think it really is just Putin asking a favor from Iran, Iran. No, no, I know the Israelis, not, not, not Hamas. No. Uh, what the Israelis gain from gaining Gaza? What are they? Well, no, 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 for, no, no. But I, I need to go back further because, yes, they're they're trying to get the hostages. That's an obvious goal, and then they're trying to somehow root out or destroy Hamas. I assume, but mm-hmm. how does that translate to on the ground? like tactical goals. Like I don't understand how they expect to do that without literally obliterating all of Gaza. And they're just it's sort of doing that, but it's like, they're not going to do it unless they get rid of all of it because they can't find these people. They're, they're hiding. I, I just don't so, get what their, their actual goals are here. So the way that you clear out an urban environment is by coordinating and clearing. So basically you cordon off a section of urban whatever, a block, and you cut it like cut it off from reinforcements and then you go room by room, floor by floor until it's clear and then okay. you hold it and you just basically basically push them out. Now if you're push them me where the political they, I mean they can't go anywhere. The, the, the all of Gaza is is a is a prison and they can go to well, Egypt, that's a kind, I guess, but a, Egypt is not going to let them in, probably. So, yeah, where do they go? <laughs> that's a kind of way of saying they're going to kill them all. But I was, you know, I was trying to be diplomatic. Uh, do you actually but, think they're going to do that? I, I, I don't think they're going to get. When the IDF drops a three thousand, you know, pound JDAM on an apartment building and makes a peanut butter, sa- you know, belly jelly sandwich of an entire Palestinian yeah, family, yeah, I know. But, but, but how many people are in Gaza? I mean, one one bomb is going to kill what a few hundred, but it's like I don't know how many. Actually, I should know this, but what are there a million people in Gaza? Something like that? I think so. I think it's like three million, something like that. Something uh, no, crazy. I think including West Bank, it's it's like approaching four, but I, I don't think Gaza has oh. three million. I, I, again, okay. I, I should double check, but in any case, it's a lot of people and, you know, unless they carpet bomb the entire strip, which is what, 200 square miles or something like that, that uh-huh. that's impossible. They don't have the, the weaponry to do that. Um, so yeah, they're going to kill people, but all of them, unless they break I out think, their nukes. No, you know? I, I think what they want and it's shown, I think they're, they want every, all the Palestinians to evacuate into Egypt and basically yeah, push maybe. out all the yeah. civilians, sure. and then, and then basically, what will happen is, you know, it's ethnic cleansing de facto because okay. they won't let them back in. Is the border I mean? open with Egypt? Is Egypt letting them in? No. So that's they're 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 the IDF is hoping that they'll reach a point where they'll let them in, probably. Yes. Okay. Precisely. So they're just going to keep pushing them. Okay. Yeah. All right. That that makes some sense. Um. Okay, and then 
on the other side, maybe this is what you thought I was asking, but I'll ask it now. The Palestinians goal, I mean, well, let's separate the Palestinians from Hamas, first of all, because there's a lot of groups and the Palestinian right, side. There's right, the right, PLO, right. which is in the West Bank pr- predominantly. Then there's Hamas, which is predominantly in, the, in Gaza. G- Gaza Strip. And they are the militant groups. Now, the people, let's just, I think, be, I'm going to assume, I don't know, but I'm going to assume that most of these people are, like most people in the world, they don't want to have any, have to do with any of this uh, unless you know, they have a vendetta or something, which a lot of them do, but I think most of them probably just want to be allowed to be a chicken farmer and be left alone or whatever it is they do over there. But, um, it's a sad state. I mean, like I I understand arguments on both sides, but like the the prospects for somebody in the Gaza strip in particular are pretty bad. So I think they'd probably be willing to accept at some point, just stopping all this, but let's just talk about Hamas for a second, which has basically declared they want to either eliminate or expel all Jews essentially from Israel, which they call Mm -hmm. Palestine. And they want to do that by launching rockets or something. But what, what is their, what are their high level goals? If I'm mistaken, and then, if I'm not mistaken, what is their what are their tactical, non-strategic goals in this particular conflict? What do they actually hope to achieve with this? So, strategically speaking, I think they're trying to achieve exactly as you say. They call it intifada. I think they're just trying to reclaim Islamic lands. I think, and to be uh, to explain the division between the PLO and Hamas. Hamas is an Islamist organization, kind of like ISIS or so on. Um, whereas the PLO is actually a left-wing communist organization, which is totally different. Now, um, they have separate goals strategically. I don't think that Hamas realistically expects to achieve their stated strategic goals, but that's what they are. Operationally speaking, I think that it's really just what's called a reprisal strike. I think it's really just trying to pick a fight and sap the Zionist state. I think that's really what it is. Moreover, actually strategically speaking, it's to torpedo relations between mm-hmm. the Arab states, namely Saudi Arabia and Egypt yeah. with Israel, which yeah. were actually going to come to accord uh, three or four weeks after the attacks were going to happen. Yeah, so I heard about that. Bas- basically, yeah. it's to reanimate the animus, I guess, between the official Arab states and you know Israel. So you brought up the Saudis, and we, we actually did a show on them um, a couple months ago three months, we something did. like that. Mm-hmm. They're, um, they're kind of an enigma, but from what I remember we talking about and what I gather is they're kind of just, they're Arab merchants effectively with a lot of stuff to sell. And they would rather <laughs> just be continuing to make money as they've been doing for the past 70 years. Um, their alliance with Israel is very interesting. Um, I can't remember geographically speaking if the Saudis actually border Israel. I don't think they do, but they're close. Um, yeah, Syria and Jordan and Lebanon and Egypt are, I think, are Israel's neighbors, right? And then the Saudis were, gosh, what, what was I? Where was I learning this? They were. 
they were talking about building, I think, a railroad actually that would connect the Indian Ocean with the Mediterranean with some kind of connection to Israel, I think. I don't know if that was just some kind of crazy person's business plan or not aware. This, this was actually going to happen. Yeah, it, I'd, I'd only seen it once somewhere on some YouTube channel, but it was... Um, it was some idea that they were talking about that was going to be kind of a competitor to the, the, you know, Chinese led Silk Road. Um, and it, it makes sense. I mean, you know, building a desert on, or excuse me, building a railroad on a desert is not really that challenging from an engineering standpoint, because you don't have a lot of, uh, mountains. You have a few, but it's generally pretty good, pretty good land to, uh, do construction on you have to deal with like you know sand sand drifts and stuff but uh basically you don't have to cut anything down it's just open so you know i'm surprised nobody ever thought of it but it's interesting idea now the problem is saudi arabia is super depopulated in that part of their country and so it wouldn't make any sense unless you're doing transshipments so you would have to have a lot of these agreements with these other countries to have um you know it it, it make economic sense because you'd have to ship a lot of traffic to pay for that track uh you wouldn't have any passenger traffic you wouldn't have any freight deliveries in between it would really just be an overland you know it's almost transcontinental frankly uh in some ways of thinking about it but they have a lot of money and they 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 know they're going to run out of oil eventually and so they're they're probably looking for other ideas and so that was something that was interesting you know connecting to israel so i could see from the saudi perspective how they don't really care about the palestinians frankly uh whether that's sad or not i'll leave up to the audience but uh just looking at how saudi arabia has behaved i don't really think they do anything other than from you know sort of a self-interest perspective and i'm not trying to diminish them it's just i'm looking at their foreign policy decisions and it's usually what's going to make the make the ruling family in particular continue to have its control continue to keep making money and to quell any potential uprisings from their religious population so whatever they have to do to do that you know they'll do um and by the way i failed to mention during our show but after 9-11 whatever you may think about Osama bin Laden and his family, uh, I do believe that the ruling family in Saudi Arabia recognized that that aspect of their country and the association they had after 9-11 was bad, and they, they worked very hard to try to quell any potential growing power base in the jihadi elements of Saudi Arabia. Now, what's been happening recently. I don't know. I don't, I don't follow Saudi politics uh, that much on that granular level, but I do know that this, you know, new Mohammed bin Salman guy, he seems pretty modern. He seems very interested in, you know, money and I'm just, I'm just giving my, my take. So I I should let you talk more, but um, I'm just trying to set up like kind of the context. What, what's going on with like, so you, you mentioned it, like you you brought it up. Like what, what was going to happen with this, relationship with israel and saudi arabia and did you say iran or who else was it going to be 
it, it was going to be Egypt. Egypt. Egypt yeah, and I, Saudi Arabia. Because the allegation was Iran was trying to scuttle this. It, it was basically they don't want these groups working together because Saudis and Iranians uh, don't like each other. Um, mm-hmm. So continue, please. So, so basically what they were going to do is normalize economic treaties and accords and stuff and uh, like for those of you i'm sure this audience probably appreciates more than most the uh, the importance of economic regularity between nations in deepening alliances political alliances and so on and so what this would herald is basically an un you know uh, basically a new era of normalizing relations with the zionist state in the words of local Arabs that have irredentist views towards uh, Israel. So effectively, the political ramifications would far exceeded the nominal, you know, ostensible parts of the treaty. And that's kind of why maybe the attack happened when it did happen. Although an attack of that magnitude is something that was happening for months so it was preparing for months it's not something that you just like cook up and be like hey bro just do this x y and z because they had a lot of follow-on actions that require competent and complex planning you know i mean so i think that uh, they have their thumb to the heartbeat of the arab world and they felt like they had to spring their attack right now although it's something that they had planned for a very long time okay well, um, unless you have more on this particular, well, I, I actually do want to know what do you think the mm-hmm. odds of? Hard to put a number on it, but what do you think the? Let's just put without numbers on it. Let's just put some. Without putting explicit probabilities on it, maybe you could rank the possible scenarios in order of likelihood, if you could maybe think about that of what might okay. unfold in the Middle East vis-a-vis all the other players that are not in the Middle East but are going to be affected by it, uh, including what might happen to, obviously, a exchange of, I don't know, intermediate-range missiles, um, mm-hmm. including so you act- to active deployments of troops involving uh, maybe mm-hmm. strikes on oil supplies, things like that. I mean, there's so many possibilities, but this is what, you know, war colleges are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to simulate right. these things, <laughs> come up with what do you do, right? So I, I, I'm not really aware of the details of those uh, projections, but maybe you have a better read than I do. So for me, I think that the highest probability outcome that's going to happen after this is all said and done is the resumption of the status quo. Basically, Israel sta- you know, saves face, does a reprisal strike in Gaza, kills a bunch of you know, Hamas, whatever, gets their rocks off. The Palestinians get their rocks off and things kind of resume where things were before, which is basically Israel slowly encroaching on Palestinian land. Um, the second highest probability course of action would happen would be a ele- escalation uh, between the IDF and Hezbollah, which is a different faction which lies to the north, which serves as a proxy to Iran. Um, and this would escalate the Middle East, where it is likely that Hezbollah would probably try to strike uh, U.S. naval assets because U.S. naval assets would, are doing 
likely airstrikes realistically in the Middle East right now. I mean, they are. Wait, but, so you said Hezbollah. That's a Lebanese group? Correct. Okay. Yes. So that would involve yes. them. Hmm. Uh-huh. And then the third likely course of action would be probably, I mean, and this is way down. This is like a, not even a close third, but a very distant, less than 10% likelihood is that Iran escalates to the point where it's doing strikes with its own forces in Israel or whatever, and we invade into Iran, no. which is uh, very unlikely. But I know for a fact that this is what people are trying to cook up, at, which is very unlikely. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it. I maybe see some carrier strikes or something, but I don't see ground forces going to Iran. Iran is a, it's a mountainous country, and they have a lot more advantage as a defender versus Iraq, and. I think they have more, a lot more people too, um, maybe two to three times. I don't remember exactly, but I don't see that one. Well, you too uh, well. you might think that we're underestimating the Iranians, but you're misunderestimating the stupidity of the United States general staff. That's, so that's you know. fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay. you can't misunderestimate me. Okay. Um, now let me let me throw a wrench at you. So we've got, so you said the status quo, that, that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable guess because I think, you know, if you're a, if you're a trader, you know, you call that reversion to the mean, right? So that, that makes some sense, but uh, that's a very popular strategy uh, in trading because it's assumed that that's usually what happens. Now it doesn't always work out that way. And, you know, Nassim Taleb made a lot of money betting that it wouldn't, but, and that's basically why he made money. Like he, had one bet once that really got lucky and sorry not to rag on him, but um, mm-hmm. he's from Lebanon. <laughs> Interesting how, <laughs> how it all comes together. Um, you know, his books say a whole bunch of nothing. I've read a lot of his books. It's just like, he's just talking about statistics in a way that's like, I mean, maybe it's just me, but I feel like it's obvious. A lot of the things that he's saying. Well, and okay. Uh, so I don't know just to talk about Taleb, I'm sorry if the audience finds this tangential, but uh, he's an interesting guy. I don't think he's stupid at all. I think he's quite intelligent. Um, His credibility as a prognosticator, I think is a little bit overrated, but I think he has some pretty good observations that are articulated in a novel enough way that I think make his fame somewhat deserved i will perhaps agree with you that if you are a little bit more steeped in probability theory and statistics his arguments are nothing new at all but i think what his contribution was is that he was able to put it in terms that a more lay audience could understand and i think Mm. he so he's a popularizer yeah he added some value in basically communicating more convoluted concepts if you're not into doing math, basically. Um, (laughs) You know, he's not going to like tell you what the central limit theorem is, but you know, he'll, I mean, he he tried actually in some of his earlier works, but nobody bought those books. So I think he learned that you can't talk like that if you want to sell things to most people. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, I forgot where I was going with this, but um, that's, that's only my fault. But the, um, well, Remi- remind me where we were. Yeah. Um, I had about some... Hezbollah, which is the second likely one. 
Well, I'll take it. I'll take the thread, and I'll, t- I'll I'll take it this way. I think that, just like you said, I'm someone that I, I I think I'm a boring. I think that's why my geopolitical takes are not popular, or rather, they're not in, in exciting. You know, because I'm not a Tom Clancyite. I don't believe that the most ridiculous thing ever is going to happen is going to happen. However, if we've seen the track record of the State Department in Ukraine, if we see the track record since '91, basically of the State Department, I think there's a very real possibility that we will mess this up either on purpose or by accident so much that the most unlikely outcome will be the most likely outcome, just like 2003. Okay. I mean, maybe Hans has this, maybe Hans has a personal opinion about this. You, you have this? No, I, I'd like to hear Hans if he's even on the call still. I mean, he usually drops off at this point, but if, if he's still there, um, I'll shut up and let That's him talk. so rude. <laughs> <laughs> what? Who's who's ruder, the person who leaves or the person who says somebody might have left and offers him the floor if he is here. So please continue. For myself. uh, Hans, Hans. Your uh, your question. Yeah, so I I guess I was asking you out of the probabilities, so three probabilities, right? I enumerated the first being, of course, the reversions of the status quo. Second one being a slight escalation, which involved Hezbollah and a strike on a uh, maybe a U.S. naval asset to the north. And then the third one, which is a culmination of all three of these things. Well, basically, the escalation of all three of these things into a full-blown, I guess, maybe deep strike into Iran, whatever it may be. What do you think is the most likely course of action? Somewhere between the first and the second, I think that you know, deep strike into Iran is just so extremely unlikely. Um, you know, Iran is massive. I've seen some postulate that you would need to refuel twice to, you know, launch any kind of uh, long-range interdiction within Iran itself to get all the way to Tehran to get to some of their northern military assets. It would be extremely yeah. challenging. I don't think uh, Turkey is going to let us use their air bases for that. Yeah, I don't true. think I think that there's a question of um, have to fly from Italy or something. Of, what kind of air defenses does Iran have? It's not very clear. So they actually have a brand new S four hundred series that's coming in from Russia, which is a very key. Yeah, I, I sorry. Think that there, there's elements like that that are that are sort of disconcerting, probably to the Pentagon, you know, regarding what kind of assets do they have on the ground. You know, do we feel comfortable? You know, Engaging with these assets, we feel comfortable moving around them. I think those are the those are the primary problems with launching deep strikes into Iran. The other problem with launching a deep strike into Iran is that you'd have to find a way to neutralize so many of their assets and so much of their command and control all at once. Because if you don't, you know, the Iranians will simply lash out. First of all, the Iranians would likely you know, throw everything they had at the American presence in Iraq. They would throw huge amounts of ordnance directly against the American bases in Iraq. The American embassy inside of Baghdad would be, uh, I assume, just overwhelmed and pummeled, both on the ground and through missile and rocket attack. Um, so it would be it would be very challenging. It would be very swift for the United States to not only launch a massive coordinated seamless strike in deep into Iran and also somehow evade all of the Iranian counterattacks at the same time. I think that would be very challenging. It's probably been one of the reasons why Iran hasn't been attacked. You know, the United States has been looking for ways to uh, 
sort of remove the Iranian offensive capabilities for a long time, and it has struggled to do so because it, you know, Iran is is a is a challenging beast to to engage with. Uh, and I don't say this as somebody that I'm not Jackson Hinkle. I don't think that Iran is is <laughs> going to wind up taking over the world or something like that. But you know, there's there's significant challenges to striking within Iran, and you can. You can tell that those exist by the fact that the United States hasn't accomplished it. Well, I mean, the, the famous Wesley well, Clarkism. I'm not done yet. I'm oh, I'm sorry. Yet. Go ahead. I didn't know. Oh, shoot. I'm not trying to interrupt <laughs> you. Yeah. Awful. So you asked out of the three possibilities, what would likely happen? So Correct. The third one, I extremely unlikely for the reasons I just listed. The counterattacks would be extreme and swift. And the kind of strikes you need to actually execute Iran effectively would be very challenging to do. So that seems unlikely. It's more than likely a mix between the first and the second. I do see Hezbollah getting involved. Hezbollah is already involved, so you can already say the second possibility has already started to occur. Um, Hezbollah seems like it's reticent to get fully involved, primarily because the United States is in the region, and they know that this would you know, result in a quick American strike. I think that if Hezbollah would get fully involved, they would have done so in coordination with the attack by Hamas on October 7th, or shortly thereafter. Um, and they clearly weren't mobilized, they clearly didn't have their assets ready, so that speaks to Hezbollah not being fully informed of what was happening, or didn't feel the necessity to get mobilized because they didn't think that launching their own attack, large-scale attack at the same time, was a viable option. And you can kind of see what um, the leader, uh, Nasrallah, Nasrallah, he has been very trepidatious, um, to the point where he's like, now being seen as somewhat of a, of a pansy by many in the Arab world for you know, giving these bizarre speeches that are basically three hours of nothing. And he does not want to get fully involved. He didn't want to get involved in the United States, wasn't in the area. Now the United States has <clears throat> parked tens of thousands of naval seamen off the coast with, all, with basically every kind of asset available. So there's no way he's going to get involved in any large-scale operation. It's just it's not going to happen. I think that you'll see continued skirmishes. It'll escalate. I think Hezbollah will launch some strikes into Israel. They're mostly going to concentrate on the Israeli border. They're going to mostly concentrate on maybe Israeli positions in the West Bank. But I don't think they're going to really focus too much on some kind of large-scale operation against Israel. So it'll, out of those possibilities, I think it'll, it'll go back to the status quo. But there's another possibility that is really you know, centered around the Israeli occupation of Gaza. Now that is going to be a whole other universe of problems, and I think that is the most likely one. The Israelis are basically committing at this point to occupying Gaza themselves. Seems like they've turned down... Um, advice and offers from other countries to participate in some kind of multinational police force action. Um, they are very driven to do this themselves. 
for better or for worse, for their own sake, they have decided that they are going to do this themselves. They are going to get enmeshed in a huge, long-range, long-standing conflict. Probably it'll go on for years if this, this, if what's happened last month has been any indication. They're going to be stuck there for a very long time. So that is more than likely what will happen. Eventually, it could return to the status quo, but the status quo might take 10 years, 15 years, 20 years to really get back. But it doesn't fundamentally solve Israel's problems. Um, You know, there's almost equal between the total sort of uh, Palestinian Arab population and the total Israeli Jew population. They're almost at one-to-one parity now inside of Israel. And there are some indications that it's possible maybe before this recent uh, war broke out that the Palestinians might actually have a larger, the Arabs than Israel in totality, might have a slightly larger population than the Israeli Jews, it's hard to tell. But at any level, most of the official estimates point them at almost one-to-one parity now. The the Palestinian and Arab population is much younger. Their demographics look much better. They have a better growth rate. So the status quo might return in 15, 20 years. Then in 15, 20 years, after a generation or two of new Palestinians have come up, Israel has an even larger, more existential problem that Israel will now effectively be a minority-run state. It will sort of harken back to its original days when it's a smaller number of Jews that are trying to run this large, disparate territory that's absolutely chock full of Arabs. That is going to be very challenging for them, Um, politically, diplomatically, resource standpoint, logistically. They're going to really, really struggle. So more than likely, the status quo returns. Hezbollah doesn't launch some kind of major ground operation. Uh, Israel doesn't go into Lebanon entirely. And everyone kind of just settles back down. But in a generation or two, Israel's going to have a bigger problem. Suddenly the Palestinians will have much larger numbers. And there will be lots of Arabs within Israel proper. This is a ticking time bomb for the Israeli state. This is more than likely why you know, you're seeing people like the Israeli defense minister go out and they're talking about changing the reality on the ground for 50 years. And they're using this, this language about thinking in terms of two, three generations down the line because it, I think they are now acutely aware of the problem they're facing. If you know a couple hundred Palestinians with some minor level of organization can launch a surprise raid into southern Israel and inflict this kind of damage, what's going to happen when they actually outnumber the Israelis by you know, more than a parity of one? What is that going to look like? I think that that is going to be very difficult for them to deal with. And suddenly, you know, you'll have an October seventh raid every year, or maybe twice a year, or maybe three times a year. And this will really eat away at the Israelis' ability to sort of have longevity as a state. I mean, Israel is a surveillance country. It's a surveillance state. It's it's a police state. Everybody is surveilled. They spend tremendous amounts of money 
on surveillance, on the intelligence apparatus, on defense, on border security, on police. I mean, the country just bleeds itself on all of these operations, and it's starting to fall apart. They're spending more than ever, and it's falling apart in real time. People are just pouring across the border. People are launching surprise attacks against IDF bases. You know, the entire surveillance apparatus didn't work, despite how expensive it is. I have a question for you, Hans. I think that's, well, I think this is, you know, the status quo will come back, but it's going to be a very long and painful decline for, I think, the Israeli state. There, there is no way they can deal with this long term. Their only option is to find some way to effectively deport and remove every Palestinian, and that is simply not going to happen. They're not going to do. They're not going to pull that off. They are clearly very desperate. Israel, two, about two weeks ago offered to pay off all of Egypt's IMF debt, which numbers in the billions of dollars, if they would agree to take the Palestinians. And Egypt turned them down. <laughs> so the, Israel- the Israelis are clearly very desperate. I mean, they're, they're looking to buy their way out of this. I mean, that's at the point where they know they have you know, a tremendous problem. I think this is really the opening salvo. You know, not it's not an isolated thing. I think this is really going to be the future of Israel. Extremely expensive police state that start is starting to fail at doing basic things like protecting its border with Gaza. All right, I think those are all really good points. Um, I wanted to ask uh, both of you. You mentioned Israel and uh, Egypt uh, and. Apparently, Egypt warned Israel three days prior to this uh, paraglider attack or something uh, about this possibility that something was coming and the Israelis seemingly didn't do anything in response to that. And there's also a theory that I've certainly considered that the Israelis wanted this to happen to, and maybe they incorrectly assessed the, uh, the outcome, but they, they wanted this to be a causes belly or a motivation for allowing them to nip this growing problem in the demographics, perhaps, or the, the population swelling of the, the Arabs in their country. They, they wanted to, to kick off an operation to try to stop that, and they needed an excuse to do it, as we've talked about, you know, being the defender is usually considered more morally justifiable. So my question is, did Mossad, did Israel want Hamas to launch this? And if they didn't, did they, did they actually not know? Because a lot of people have said, you know, Mossad is one of the best intelligence agencies in the world and they have a lot of back doors and certainly at least explicit relationships with a lot of very highly funded spying organizations like the CIA and probably the NSA uh, and the British and, and other countries. So how did they not know if they didn't know? And if they did know, did they want this to happen? I think, well, the, the reports that Egypt had warned them, um, well, I saw those going around. I don't know if those have actually been completely validated. If they have been, then that wouldn't surprise me. 
but I'm, I'm still waiting for some real confirmation that that was a thing. You know, it could have really just been the Egyptians deciding to knock these Israelis down a peg and embarrass them. What's, you know, another possibility that, you know, that you're hinting at, uh, maybe Lance can comment on this too, is this idea that this is some kind of Israeli deep state operation that the that the Mossad and the Israeli security apparatus basically decided to allow an attack to happen. I think that that's dubious. There's not. First of all, Israel. It was prior to this. Israel was basically a society on the brink of political meltdown. Over the last year, you basically had large-scale riots and protests and, and you know, lots of intra-party violence within the, well, on the streets of Israel, on the streets of Tel Aviv. You had parties actually fighting. Now, this isn't, this isn't a country that's exactly united very well. And it seemed as though that large swaths of the security state and Mossad itself actually seemed to be against Bibi for one reason or another, against, against the Likud party. Um, who knows what what dynamics went into this? It's also possible to consider, and I think this people should take the simpler possibilities into account. And Israel mirrors uh, you know, a lot of Western countries in, in many respects, has a declining birth rate, has health problems, um, has a competency problem. You know, the, you know, the American intelligence community has gotten so much wrong um, for many decades, but it's been more and more pronounced uh, over the last few decades, and in much more recently it's been more pronounced. Um, you could say that some of it was machinations, or they, they got things wrong on purpose, or that some, there's an obfuscation there. But I think that Israel does mirror Western societies in that it is getting dumber, it's getting older, it's getting less competent. And it's very possible that the Israeli security state is lazy. Um, you know, what has Mossad even been up to the last 10, 15 years? You know, the last like real excursion the Israelis had was the Hezbollah conflict in 06. What have these guys done since then? You know, it's been quite a long time. They haven't really seen a lot of action. Israel's been mostly quiet in terms of its foreign policy escapades, in terms of its, you know, any real major foreign action, as far as I know. So I don't really think these guys are the same Assad that we think that we used to think of. Uh, you know, from the outsider point of view, Israel's just a society in decline. Like, Who do you think whacked uh, Soleimani? That was the United States, as far as I can tell. I mean, Trump so much took credit for it and basically said it was a, an American military operation that got rid of Soleimani. Maybe right. the Israelis gave some intelligence, but you know, that was the United States through and through. Right? Unless, so what unless, was going to? So what recently happened and it surfaced was that uh, Trump wasn't going to go through with it with killing the guy. It was actually the Israelis who. Um, kind of rigged a on a civilian car a machine gun <laughs> like automatic machine like you know it's, it was really weird contraption but like a uh, remote controlled machine gun that killed Soleimani 
Um, and it was very crazy operation, but I, I think, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you. I don't want to be the, well, actually kind of guy, but I think, I think that they're very competent still. And I hate, I hate to interrupt you there, but I no, think, it's fun. I think that, um, I agree with you. I agree with you that the aging population of Israel is a major strategic issue. I mean, is the core issue. I mean, like the craziest thing about Bolshevism and feminism and stuff is that this idea that the highest form of life is finding work and we're finding out that work is supposed to benefit life not the other way around and feminism has fundamentally undermined fertility rates across every single society that kind of imbibes that ethos and so i completely agree with you that the the islamic world is uh, by and large immunized against this because of the fact that they do have this kind of strict, um, I guess it's called sexist policy, but their fertility rate, just as you mentioned above, is, uh, or rather, I think it was Adam, um, that basically uh, favors the Arabs, right? And so I agree with you, and I think that uh, Adam's impulse that uh, luring these guys or allowing an attack is actually completely apt. Uh, I remember one of the first calls to action of Western Zionists was trying to allude that 10-7 was the same as uh, 9-11, you know? And so I think there is some... So I think it's functioning in the same mechanism as 9-11. I think it was exactly as Adam had uh, probably portrayed it as, and also the Likud party before this was... Uh, being undermined by the leftist coalition, which people don't know about, uh, inside of Israel. And yeah. I think this was a, a two-part attack. Basically, it was a, a, a Cassius Belli to ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip, as well as to buttress the Likud party, which is ben, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's party. Um, and I think it, it, there are a lot of factors at play, and I think it's blowing up in their face, frankly. Yeah, I think... so. The demographic argument is probably one of the biggest uh, argument points in favor of the idea that this was actually that Israeli intelligence knew this was going to happen or had some inkling about this and allowed it to happen. That they think this is this is their opening salvo and their their plan to somehow stave off the inevitable you know, Arab overwhelming. Um, the problem with that is that it, it has not worked. It, it's completely backfired. First of all, they have, you know, in their attempt, if, if that was the goal, and in their attempt to launch this massive attack into Gaza to start cleansing it, um, they've erected a gigantic global opposition to themselves. And, you know, this isn't the early aughts. Like, Israel is going to really struggle diplomatically as a result of this, I think. And especially when you know, it's become such a resource-intensive war, the United States is now having to expend enormous resources diplomatically, monetarily, mm-hmm. you know, to, to basically protect the Israelis. Um, it, it's really not going to end up working out very well. Everybody's going to try and find ways to exploit this. Russians will exploit it. Chinese will exploit it. Everybody will exploit it some way or another. So the complete blowback is actually an argument that this wasn't intended, that I think that they simply missed the boat. Second, you know, another argument is that 
it doesn't really look like Netanyahu is actually getting you know, anything out of this politically. He kind of, you know, it was like it was like the W effect after 9/11. I mean, the 9/11, the, the 9/11 comparisons are very apt, not just because the Israelis couldn't stop making them, but because it's it's functioning the same way. I mean, after 9/11, W was the most popular president of all time in American history for like six months, and then he completely flatlined. Yeah, and everybody realized, oh, so this is what the game is about. And it completely blew up in their faces. And he walked away from the presidency as one of the most tarnished presidents of all time, when, you know, widely regarded as terrible administration. I don't think this is going to work for Bibi. If this was the intention, was like, if we're going to let uh, Hamas kidnap a bunch of Israeli women and kill, you know, a bunch of like 65 year olds from the so- former Soviet Union out in these settlements in southern Israel, and this is going to give me. A big bump in the polls. I, it's you know, if that was the idea, then you know, that that's that's a really strange idea that they had. If they're that desperate, I don't know. I am willing to believe that they that they allowed it to happen, but it doesn't seem like it, it's worked out for them at all. I think and everybody possi- agrees with that. Yeah, we're just not yeah, sure. It's if definitely, they it's definitely not. It. I think it's definitely possible. It has not worked at all, so I have to question if they even intended for it. Yeah. Also, it seems like you know we were discussing earlier that there was a lot of agency that potentially went into promulgating this plan and you know, a way to scuttle the Israeli-Arab relations with Saudi Arabia and Egypt, a way to potentially you know um, put a barrier between this larger. You know, American, inter, you know, uh, international logistics initiative where we're going to have railroads going from India to Israel, all this sort of stuff. To me, that seems more like there was a good amount of you know real planning that went into this. There could have been a lot of outsized help given to Hamas to execute this effectively, to put a stop to this. And it's possible the Israeli intelligence community was like was outfoxed. They simply got outsmarted. I think that's totally possible too. They simply just got outsmarted. They did not right. see this happen. They're not omnipotent. I, They're I think not I, omnipotent. No. Yeah, and yeah. I like to push back on CIA kind of. Uh, you know, tinfoil hat guys in America, like they think that like they pull all the strings and that everything comes into now, like, uh, you know, we have to push back against this narrative because it disempowers people that are trying to have agency, but it also is just wrong. It's just factually incorrect. These guys get a lot wrong. Like they, they, they have a lot of, you know, various schemes that blow up in their faces all the time. Lots of things that go wrong. And it, and it's, I think the, you know, that that just comes with the territory of intelligence. Like it's so high risk, yes. high risk, high reward. It's the most high risk, high reward kind of you know occupation there is. I mean, you know, really are. And I don't, dang I don't, I don't know. Hedge funds. Hans, you're exactly <laughs> correct. I'm sorry. Like I just want to like hammer this home for the audience because I think there's this concept that these guys are like omniscient omnipotent being omnipotent beings that are able to do these crazy hijinks and get away with it every time but you don't hear about the other 99 instances where it went horribly wrong where like cia agents were whacked like they're getting constantly whacked in ukraine i don't know if you're aware of this or well they don't um, talk about that just like i was sort of tongue-in-cheek saying well there's you know the world of finance where there's a lot of high risk high reward but obviously you're not dealing with dead bodies as much 
for it all, hopefully. But the the fact is you screw up plenty of times. And a lot of these fund managers who somehow manage to continue in the business, even after they've screwed up, uh, a lot of it is because they're really good salesmen and they never tell you about their blowups. And they usually just somehow cook up a story where they're, they're coming up with this fantastic new idea and they get you to believe, but there's a lot of uh, attempts to audit their track records and they will try to obscure that just like these intelligence agencies or just like anybody, frankly, who has a lot of potential risks in whatever they do, they're going to steer you away from the screw ups. And I think if you watch enough of these spy movies, I mean, one of the, the big notions is that, you know, if, if things go bad, like we, we will not acknowledge your existence. Like you, you're done. You, mm-hmm. We cut you off. And the fact that people sign up for that is actually quite interesting to me that do they know that going in or are they just naive that they think they're actually going to have their people are going to have their backs. I mean, I think in the military, there's sort of a notion that, you know, leave no man behind, but I don't think that works in the CIA or any other intelligence agency. I think there's, there's another argument by the way, in favor of the idea that they may have intended for this to happen or allowed it to happen. The end result has been the, you know, permanent, I mean, there was already, you know, a significant American military presence in the Mediterranean. Now it's even more significant, and now it's parked right off the shore of Israel. If the intention was to, you know, secure for some indefinite length of time, you know, a close-by, large-scale, you know, active, alert American presence to do something with, that's an argument in favor of the idea they allowed it to happen. In order to effectively not lure Hamas into something, lure the United States into something, but not lure them into something you know, where they're potentially, I mean, they could be in danger, but more so that the Israelis now have the Americans right next to them. This allows them a lot more freedom in whatever they want to do. If they did want to go into Lebanon, they could do it now. I mean, it'd be, it would be almost a disaster, but they could actually maybe pull it off. Six months ago, they would, you know, it would have been a disaster to go in. They would have had to find a way to get the Americans over there, to get them mobilized, to get them ready. So that is an argument in favor of either the Israelis allowing it to happen because they wanted the Americans close by for some strategic reason, or they could just be exploiting, you know, the end result of all of this, which is that the Americans are there now. But like I said, I'm, I'm very willing to consider the possibility that this was fully intentional and. Again, Israel is, you know, an, an incredibly sophisticated and very um, draconian surveillance state, and it's it's very it's very hard to believe that Hamas was able to pull this off. You know, how did Hamas get a hold of paragliders? How did the Israelis not? I mean, these guys must have done drills with them, or they trained somewhere with them. You know, the Israelis have this Precisely. big intelligence network. They never figured out these guys were. Learning how to use paragliders with, you know, automatic machine guns, like, you know, uh, how do you miss the mark on that? You know, that, that seems hard to it, believe. It's, it's too, yes, exactly. It, it, you hit the nail on the head. It is so the imprint is so ridiculous that for people that specifically Mossad is constantly surveilling social media, especially Telegram and so on. Yeah. That that it's like ridiculous to think that they wouldn't have preempted something because they can preempt even the smallest, stupid little 
plot in the middle of Israel. So anyway, I think you're completely right. And I have two points. First point, just to go back, just to prove my point that, you know, the CIA gets foiled sometimes or a lot of times is Lee Kuan, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore completely destroyed the CIA there. Uh, President Lukashenko in Belarus Belarus uh, has successfully for multiple years, decades to like root out cells and CIA agents in his um, in Belarus. I mean, uh, for instance, uh, Boko Haram whacked Green Berets in Nigeria just a few years ago in a very public kind of thing. So I think people really need to be uh, aware that these people are not omnipotent. Now, second point, I think you're absolutely correct, and I think it's blowing up in Netanyahu's face. I don't want to make any predictions because I think when you make predictions or conjectures, I think it's irresponsible. I think you really have to see where the dice are rolling in war, just like uh, you know, trading. It's not, never a sure thing. It's really rolling the dice, which is why most political organizations try to do diplomacy. It's because conflict is such a... It's such an ambiguous outcome that you never really know, and it kind of sometimes escapes your control, the positive control of the situation. So I wonder how things will end up. I mean, Adam, do you have anything to say to that? Yeah, no, I, well, okay, you brought up trading. Um, prediction is the holy grail of trading, and I think prediction is the holy grail of intelligence agencies, and they spend a lot of money trying to predict what's going to happen. Uh, I think that should tell you it's not a completely fool's errand to try to do it. Now, it's a fool's, it's a fool's assumption to think that it's going to be accurate all the time. I think that's stupid. But what you try to do in trading and what you try to do in anything that it has like a level of risk and uncertainty in it, and you can't really control that, you just have to deal with it because you can't control everything, you have to make calculated bets. And that's basically what people on Wall Street do. And I think that's what they're supposed to do in the intelligence agencies is they basically look at the probabilities and they say on enough dice rolls, as to use your analogy, you're going to eventually win. And that's assuming that, you know, this is bringing in some statistical theory. But if you if you roll, if you flip a coin that is unfair, let's say it has a 51% chance of getting heads and a 49% chance of getting tails. If you flip it once, you're probably going to get one or the other. It's not really going to show a pattern. But if you do it enough times, you'll if you do it a million times, you you can basically say and this is the central limit theorem law, law of large numbers, you're going to have 51% of those are going to be heads. And that's that's called an edge and that's basically the best you can do in these situations. You can't get them all right, but you have to know that your assumptions are good enough to make those bets. Because if you don't have the bets that are in your favor, you're basically walking into a casino and you're going to get taken over a long enough time period. You might get lucky, but if you're playing a long game, you have to have that statistical edge. And I think that's what they're trying to do. And I think that's all you can really hope for. But that's all I wanted to say about that. Um, what I was going to say previously, but I think it, it'll slot in now, is with the events of this year, it, it raises the question for me, at least, the timing of it. Because 
you've got, I mean, I, I hate to make this all U.S. centric, and I'm not trying to imply that it just depends on the U.S. because it doesn't. But my understanding of the U.S. is better than any other country because I live here. And I think it is a still extremely important country that affects everybody else more than they'd like probably, but it just, it's just the fact. And I think it raises the question, why, why is this Israel Hamas thing happening now? And my speculative theory, I don't know if it's true, but I'm just hypothesizing here is that it could have something to do with next year, which is when the white house gets turned over possibly. And the, I, I haven't listened to Jared Kushner, but I saw he was making the rounds on social media. Obviously he's a, I don't really know what his status is these days in the Trump family, but he was obviously in the administration on some level and probably assisted to a pretty large degree in getting the Israeli embassy moved. Where, where did they move it to Tel Aviv or Jerusalem? I, I, I don't remember, but they, they moved the embassy and that, that yeah. was some big deal. And I, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Okay. And, and I, don't really care, but it's like, okay, whatever. But that, the, the, the Arabs got pissed off about that. Okay. So, and I remember Ivanka and, uh, or Jarvanka, whatever they, they called Jared and Ivanka, they, they were there to celebrate the, uh, opening of the new U S embassy. And meanwhile, uh, there were like Hamas rockets going off like somewhere else. And so, uh, he, he's not, he's not a fan of Hamas. They're not a fan of him. In my try to condense this to a point, um, I'm wondering if the timing of this has something to do with the election in the U.S. And they're they're trying to basically get either the Democrats in a in a corner where they have to accede to Israel's desires, and that that includes the Jewish members of U.S. Congress, obviously, uh, to get something done while they still can, or maybe they're hoping that if Trump gets in, they can persuade him and you know Jarvanka, etc., to go in harder on Israel's side against Iran. And and Trump has always had this Iran thing. And I remember he was he was a huge opponent of the Iran deal that Obama and Kerry got. And and actually. The more I've looked at it, the more actually it made sense to me that they did that and actually was not an opponent of it. Uh, although I haven't really researched it that much, to be honest. But to be frank, I I don't think Trump has done any more research than I have. Uh, I think he, he just sort of sits in his um, penthouse and watches television. And that's just the extent of his analysis geopolitically. But um, I'm not saying he's stupid. I, I just don't think he, he's not he's not a very deep guy when it comes to this stuff. Um, so I don't think he necessarily has a read on this, but he certainly seems to be anti Iran and he's got a family connection that is pro Israel. So I'm wondering about that possibility. I'm wondering if the, the sort of timing of this has something to do with that. I don't know what, why else it would happen if, so we, we, we can understand the timing of it maybe from the Hamas side, but if we believe that it's Israeli plot, why would they do it now? Um, so that, that's my sort of theory. If, if there are more theories, I'm sure there are, but I, I can't come up with a better one at the moment. So I'm wondering if you guys think about the timing of this and why it happened this year or now. So 
Um, I would like to go ahead and say I think it has to do with Russia. I think Russia set this in motion. I think it had to do with the strategic... Uh, I mean, they're coming to a culminating point. Like, they don't want to have too many dead Russians. It's going to affect the politics in Ukraine. I mean, excuse me, in Russia. And I think they want to wrap up what's going on in the Ukraine. I think this is a strategic pivot to get the United States backing off of, you know, Ukrainian battleground and focus them somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the administration may be pushing for war in Iran because a wartime presidency is a popular presidency. And they also have war powers, so they would be able to clamp down on their uh, political adversaries, legally speaking. I think that there are a lot of interests that would have that happen. So I think the timing is good for a number of different parties, and I think most of them are just taking it as it comes as opposed to forming the wave. They're just riding it. But Hans, what do you think? I'm not really sure what to think anymore. <laughs> what do I, I think, think about should... what do I think about what specifically? Why why was this event set in motion, uh, if at all, in in particular this year? Is it is it just oh. a coincidence or is there a, a reason oh, for the I timing? Think, I think it's for the reasons that we that have been you know speculated already. There were economic reasons or political reasons, diplomatic reasons. But those those weren't that different yeah. last year, perhaps you know, for example, or next year. They, so they, well, things compound over time. So suddenly, you know, something that is a small problem one year can be a huge problem the next. I think that you know, the, the that whole initiative that Biden announced, uh, this sort of uh, alternative to the Belt and Road, that he's uh, this large scale, you know trillion dollar global uh, FDI initiative that he's trying to get going. Um, that might have been part of it. Uh, the simpler explanation is always better. I think the Palestinians, um, you know, realistically were pissed off. They've had a very tumultuous relationship with the Israelis the last four or five years. There was kind of a minor intifada not too long ago. Um, there have been all those raids on those important mosques within Palestine. I think it was just burgeoning under the surface and more than likely it was an attempt to create chaos in the region um, to just keep the Israelis occupied, keep the Americans occupied. Uh, I don't know if it has too much to do with the American domestic situation, to be honest, it might. Uh, I think that more than likely it's strictly related to the American uh, foreign policy uh, establishment. That, that's really where their focus is. From the, I think yes. from the perspective of the Iranians and from the Palestinians and even the Israelis, actually certainly the Israelis, they don't really care who's exactly in the White House. They don't really care who's in Congress, who has the majority of Congress. Uh, it's sort of immaterial to them. American foreign policy doesn't fundamentally change in those regards, so that doesn't matter. I don't think it was. It, this was done this year for some domestic reason. I think it, in the United States, I think it was a lot of this, particularly in the Middle East, was done for reasons that have boiled under the surface for a while, um, and it's also just the beginning of a you know more than more than anything. This is just the beginning of the new generation of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Palestine is you know rapidly going to outpace the Israelis, and this is how this starts. Eventually, like I'm saying, these raids will become more common. 
or they'll attempt them more often with more people. It'll be inevitable, particularly now that so much of Gaza is, you know, pulverized. These people have very little left to lose. So I, I think the Israelis are setting themselves up for you know, more attempted raids, probably maybe even more successful raids in the future. Yes, that's going to be very challenging for them. Um, yes. And yeah, in terms no, of in, yeah, in terms sorry. of well, in terms of why this year, another possible reason could be that um, you know if if it is related to the American domestic situation. Um, the United States is currently having a debt servicing problem. Uh, we have a you know a large scale financial problem. Bond yields are up over five percent. Um, these are sort of you know count you know well bandied about numbers that a lot of people hear, but it, it is significant, and I think that it's it's an opportune moment to strike. If you're looking at you know this big empire that has a lot of financial problems, it seems very stretched. Um, you know, there's been a lot of consolidation at the top, lower level uh, military commanders and diplomatic attaches, you know, are less free to make their own decisions and, you know, sort of think outside the box. This is a perfect time to strike. If you want to take a pot shot at the empire, probably not a better time than now to do so when it's stretched thin, it's running out of cash, has, you know, a lot of leadership problems. That could be it. But I don't think it's, it's anything in, in particular. I think it's just general trends that people around the world have noticed. More than likely, this is why, for example, the Burmese felt very comfortable pulling off a military coup two years ago. I mean, they did, it was fearless. You know, they, they basically, yeah. they, you know, they looked at the United States in the face and, and went ahead and, and got rid of the American and sort of UN puppet within Burma uh, very swiftly. Exactly. And That's so actually incredibly apt example. A lot. Of, I think that there are groups around the world who, you know, they smell blood in the water. They see that everybody's stretched a bit too thin, and they're taking their, you know, they're taking their opportunity. It could work out very terribly for them too. You know, if this does go south, a very remote possibility. This all goes very hot. It gets very chaotic. First of all, a lot of these like third world militias are going to die. They're, I mean, you know, the United States will, you know, do pretty horrible things to them. You don't have to look further than Iraq to see what kind of destruction America is capable of in the Middle East. So they could work out poorly for them in the long run. But this is the moment to try and, and seize what little fiefdoms you want. You know, if you've been waiting to do something, if there's some anger that's been boiling under the surface. I think now's the time to go for it. And you probably see more factions, more countries start to do the same thing wherever they can in little ways to start trying to peel off. Well, as we record this, I believe one or two days from now, there's going to be a big summit in San Francisco, which, by the way, they took a grand total of about a week to clean up the mess that that place has turned into over the past decade of negligence of the leaders there. And yeah. when they were motivated, you say they, you say they cleaned them. it up, but apparently a Czech uh, television crew was mugged and had all their production. Well, it, okay. Stolen. I should, I should, I should clarify. They cleaned up <laughs> the areas where G is going to be driving yes. a motorcade yeah. through, but if they wanted to, 
just like if they wanted to deport the illegals in this country, they could do it in a month if they wanted to. The whole friggin' thing. I mean, this has been done after major wars in less time with more people. But in any case, uh, there's going to be a big summit between the uh, leader of China and the, uh, the meat puppet that is in the White House and in San Francisco to talk about God knows what, but who cares? But it, it's, it's interesting because you talk about openings and after the U.S. popped out of Afghanistan, you know, the Ukraine thing happens and now this happens. Well, the big thing that seems to be on the radar for a lot of people is Taiwan. So <clears throat> it's funny, though, because if you look at Xi recently, he's been making an effort to, from what I can tell, to actually encourage foreign direct investment in China. I don't think it's going to work. I think the word is out that this guy doesn't like multinationals. I mean, that's been true for a long time in China, but this guy is actually explicitly saying this stuff. And um, a lot of companies are leaving and Apple's leaving. And um, I think Xi is actually maybe a little bit worried about it. Um, But that's the economic stuff. I think the Taiwanese thing is particularly concerning for a lot of people. It affects the economy regarding the semiconductor supply chain. Politically, it's a big deal. Um, If the Chinese invaded Taiwan, that would demonstrate yet again, the U S is not really the hegemon that a lot of people think it is. Uh, And people like, you know, this new, Republican candidate Vivek are basically saying, well, until we, we, uh, we get the uh, semiconductors back in the U S we'll defend Taiwan. But after that, we don't really care. <laughs> so I don't know well, how much longer this is going to go on for strategic implication. Why the United States. So the United States had that sort of tacit agreement to pretend Taiwan didn't exist, but also threatened to nuke China if they attacked it since the 70s, which is kind of interesting. And, you know, Taiwan didn't manufacture a single thing in the 1970s. It couldn't even make shoes. So why were we so obsessed with it? I mean, the the reality, other than, you know, finding one of many ways to box the Chinese in, is that Taiwan sits in a very crucial threshold. The oceans between mainland China and Taiwan are notoriously tumultuous. It's very difficult to move large volumes of shipping traffic or military naval traffic through those straits uh, during certain times of the year. However, if you are already if you already possess a naval base on Taiwan itself, you remove a lot of those problems. This allows you to jump into the Pacific more rapidly. So. Keeping Taiwan under American influence is important, not just for semiconductors. I think we talked about this last time. You know, we could we could basically take Taiwan out of the semiconductor business in ten years if we wanted. And you know, Taiwan didn't make these things before. We could easily go back to that world. It wouldn't, wouldn't be that hard. The reality is, that I think the United States is much more concerned about the Chinese being able to go into the Pacific Ocean. Having Taiwan, having the Philippines, to an extent Japan, under your control literally boxes them in. It Mm -hmm. keeps them within a small naval sphere they cannot do much with. 
that is probably the bigger implication. And, you know, that's probably why even if the chip issue was removed from the board, uh, the United States would still be interested in potentially fighting for Taiwan. I think that's, that one's much more dangerous. And I don't know if... I think G. If he really believed that the United States was stretched too thin and it wasn't able to handle these proxy wars very well, uh, he would have tried, you know, already, or he'd be preparing to try. And it would be very obvious that they were mobilizing. He would need to mobilize hundreds, thousands of ships, hundreds of thousands of you know troops. You need to mobile. He'd basically need to build entire new army barracks right on Fujian. You need to build new hospitals, blood supply. Like you, you know, it'd be very obvious. Everybody would see what he's doing six months out. Like the Russians moving a hundred thousand troops to the Ukrainian border. I mean, everybody could tell what was going to happen. So it would, it, he wouldn't be able to hide it. He's not doing anything like that. I mean, he's not even really getting close to doing anything like that. Oh well. He not not really. He he is basically decided, I think wisely, that the United States would actually fight. It wouldn't be a proxy war. It would actually be the American Navy and the American Air Force. That's not something that he really wants to do. Would he knock out a carrier? Probably two. He'd kill a bunch of Air Force pilots. Yeah. Would the Chinese Golden Coast look the same for two generations? No. It'd be utterly ruined. So th- there's very very little likelihood that the Taiwan issue is going to come up at this summit or even come up for another year or two. I think it's very quiet. No one really wants to do this. And the only lesson that the United States has learned from Ukraine is that if you want to make a sort of um, booby trap for your enemy in a region. You need to invest as much as you can, as fast as you can. So the United States did plenty of work trying to prepare Ukraine and turn it into this booby trap for the Russians. You know, launching this coup, moving American assets in there, slowly funding pieces of their government, slowly moving equipment in, slowly selling them weapons, and then accelerated it at the last minute. It's been the opposite experience with Taiwan. There's been a constant flow of intelligence, of money, of assets, of weapons, of equipment into Taiwan before the war started, and it's accelerated after the Ukrainian war started. The United States has been giving billions to Taiwan. This is going to be very difficult for, for, for Xi to do anything about. I really, I really actually don't think a Taiwan war will happen. It just won't happen. It, it, it'll be too insane. Be you know, two, three hundred thousand dead Chinese soldiers more than likely. It'd be a graveyard of ships surrounding the island. It would be just a total catastrophe for everybody involved. It won't happen. More than likely, what what Xi is coming to the United States to talk about is fentanyl. Believe it or not, I think this is well. That that is on the agenda. That is, and it's not only on the agenda. I think it's the big reason because. It's one of the chief – you were mentioning earlier that the Saudis really got freaked out that the American public realized that they probably had an indirect hand in 9-11. And 
it nearly torpedoed the set the relationship with the United States, with this, which the Saudis regard as existential. They need the United States. Yeah. So they worked very they worked very hard to undo that. They basically turned over the country to the American intelligence assets so they could go around and just black bag people you know, for that reason to basically say, okay, you know, give the game up. You can do whatever you want. We don't have any involvement with this. I think the Chinese are taking a very similar approach. They know that there's a very poor perception of China in the United States for a litany of reasons. Most of them are you know, valid. Uh, one of the big ones is the fentanyl issue and the cooperation with the Mexicans on this, on this problem. It's really, really bad. Fentanyl is now like it's killing like 100,000 people a year. It's, it's insane. It's like a Vietnam every year in the American population. It's yeah. totally wild. And, and it's just, just one drug. I mean, we have massive drug problem. One drug is wiping out 100,000 people a year, leaving hundreds of thousands. I mean, of putting COVID aside, people say this is the real biowarfare. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're leaving 100,000 100, dead, hundreds of thousands of others in permanent rehab. Their lives are ruined, which affects millions of other lives. It's a disaster, okay? I think that's one of the big reasons he's coming, is basically he's going to give assurances to, to to Joe that they're going to try and clamp down on it, earnestly try and clamp down on it. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. More than likely, it was intentional, whatever they did to try and get this going. Uh, it's become so insane out of control and everybody knows that it's the chinese doing it i mean you even had like an american 60 minutes reporter i think go to some like call center in china where people were just ordering fentanyl wholesale to ship to the united states like it, it's very obvious what's going on here and the other reason is what you said he's coming to talk about money he basically wants more money. He wants more companies to try and invest in China. Yeah, companies aren't really interest, interested in, in doing business with him anymore. Doing business with the Chinese. First of all, the Chinese steal. Second of all, the Chinese have these terrible technology transfer agreements. So even if they're not stealing, they find a legal way to take your technology. Thirdly, in parting a lot of this knowledge out of the Chinese has created the competitor in the first place. So I think a lot of American companies now see basically mirrors, clones of themselves within China. They're doing business in this country 20 year, 15, 20 years later, there is a clone of their company in that country. I think this I'm is not even sure that. it's that long anymore. The the pace, I, I mean, the, is, the as pace much as is, is, yes. Yeah. Now it's, it's, it's much faster. Pace, yeah. But, the original big companies that right. are in there have experienced right. this. They've experienced this problem. So I think that's right. the biggest Westinghouse thing. Westinghouse or whoever, you know, is setting been, up their they, light bulb they factory. Feel like, right. They feel like they've been effectively cloned. The, a vertically integrated clone of them exists now with a different name and so forth, but it's there. And now it's doing business internationally. Now it's trying to do business in the United States. I mean, this is a disaster. So they are going to, they're trying to get out. He's basically coming kind of hat in hand to ask for, I don't know, a bailout. But he's trying to get some kind of bigger cooperation from the United States. And we'll see if, you know, if the United States is willing to give it to him. Honestly, this is probably the perfect time from a strategic standpoint to tell them to get lost. 
and offer nothing. Um, you know, deliver the knockout blow and just allow the Chinese to kind of fall back to their usual state of once a century collapse and cannibalism and, you know, 300 million people die. Like, you know, just let that happen again. Like, what's the big deal? What do you think, Lance? I think you have a background in Taiwanese uh, military strategy. So, you know, well, I guess uh, as far as like the PRC's um, operational possible outcomes in, in Taiwan and the Straits of, you know, so I, I guess Formosa is actually a very interesting situation because the Chinese, just like as you guys alluded above, and Hans is absolutely correct, that it's unlikely that she would take a kinetic approach, which is, you know, a jingo for, or a freaking, you know, a term for, you know, actually a conventional exchange. But I think... You, euphemism. People, yeah, it's a euphemism. Thank you. I'm a little bit, I'm low, running low on my zins, you understand? So anyway, point being is um, what would happen, I, I think people really don't take into account the fact that the PRC is an incredibly potent force now. It's not like they were in the 90s where it's like this like pushover paper tiger. I mean, they have very capable army, air force, navy. Their navy is actually on parity with ours. Ours surface navy sucks. It's actually a rust bucket navy. The only elements of our navy that are effective are SEALs and the uh, submarine force, which is obviously the best in the world still. But our surface navy, which projects power, protects invasions, um, you know, ensures convoys and resupply and so on, is actually the inferior of the PRC's Navy at this time. I, I know they have more, more ships, but qualitatively but not I'm not. Yeah, I agree. I, so my, my point or my question at least is how it's do you important. measure the quality of the Navy's right. quantities? Okay, good. I'm getting to that. So the, the Chinese are actually our superiors in ballistic missile technology. I know it sounds weird, but they actually have hypersonic missile batteries, not just land-based, but also on their Navy, naval ships, um, which have in-transit uh, maneuverability. They actually have a technology that and capability of fielding it in the, in the field for combat operations, which actually far exceed our capabilities. We don't have that. We're just trying to catch up right now. Right now... If there was actually a, a uh, war game done, which the United States Navy would be able to um, have air superiority and relatively naval superiority for the first 72 hours of combat operations, but after that, they would be able to sink our entire 7th Fleet. I mean, people really underestimate how powerful they have become and how willing they are. And that's the other thing, too, is that Han said, like, uh, well, you wouldn't recognize you know the chinese coast that it, you know hundreds of millions of people would die dude it could be a billion people die and they don't care i think people don't they underestimate the lack of value for life the prc has with its people i mean the korean war should be instructive but even with their conflict with vietnam where they just threw men at a machine gun like a meat grinder they don't care i mean uh, when uh, russians do cross training with them up in manchuria they are always and this is the russians by the way they always have anecdotes about how whimsical they are with their soldiers lives even in training events so i think people really underestimate the willingness to let g unload his surplus male population on a military escapade especially if it means acquiring taiwan and putting g into the 
annals of history on par with Mao Zedong. I think people really underestimate that. However, it is the uh, modus operandi of the Chinese historically and currently to play the long game. So mm-hmm. it's a 50-50 chance, but I think to dismiss the possibility of an invasion of Taiwan, uh, I think is a little bit sanguine to say the least. I think they, it's a real threat and they are actually uh, pose a real threat to us, the United States Navy and uh, combat forces in general. So, I mean, I, I think I wanted to bring this full circle and I wanted to add this. Uh, I, we went down the, the, the street of uh, the PRC in specific, but I was hoping I could actually say this from the uh, horse's mouth. I, I don't support Dugan or anything, but I was w- hoping I could read a paragraph from his recent sure. uh, article. So his article is actually very interesting, and it's absolutely related to what we're talking about now. It's called From Ukraine to the Middle East on the Brink of World War III. Literally came out today. So here's just a paragraph. I'll read it to you really quick, and we'll just talk from there. But Russia, as a pole of the multipolar world, is, a fighting, is fighting the West in Ukraine. Mainly Islamic countries influenced by Western propaganda did not clearly understand the reasons, goals, and the very nature of this war, assuming it was a regional conflict. And there are many such in the Islamic world itself. But now, as globalism in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict directly affects all Muslims worldwide, Russia's special military operation takes on a different meaning in their eyes. This is a struggle of the multipolar world against the unipolar one, meaning it is fought not only in the interests of Russia as a pole, but also indirectly or even directly in the interests of all emerging geopolitical poles. China understands this the best, and among the Islamic countries, Iran. However... There is a rapidly growing geopolitical conscious in other Islamic societies, in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, Pakistan, and I'll also add Erdogan came in in support of Hamas, this is me, returning to Dugan now, Uh, Pakistan and Indonesia. Hence the attempts at rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran and Turkey's uh, sovereign policy, excuse me, policy. And the more the Islamic world sees itself as a pole, a single civilization, the clearer Russia, Russia's behavior becomes. Putin is already a popular leader on a global scale, especially in non-Western countries. Now in the eyes of the world, his strategy acquires a very clear sense and justification. Russia is already fighting full force against unipolarity, that is, against globalism and the West. Currently, the West, along with its Israeli proxy, is attacking the Islamic world, subjecting Palestinians, Arabs to genocide. So, end quote. I guess, I think people ascribe more value to Dugan than they should, but I think this probably encapsulates the sentiment of what's going on geopolitically as a whole. And again, I don't personally support Dugan. I don't think he's right, and I frankly, he's very inimical to the West, obviously, but I think it gives a rounding to our conversation here and some justification in their eyes. I mean, what do you think? I was just thinking about something (laughs) that had to do with probabilities again. And um, I, I, more and more these days, I try to think this way because growing up, you know, for example, I, as a kid, you sort of see these institutions in the world that, you know, run by adults and they, they seem to be omnipotent and omniscient. They, they know everything. And, you know, from a kid's perspective, that's sort of relatively true. But as you get older, you realize, you know, a lot of these people are just as dumb as you are. And in many cases, dumber. 
and more arrogant, which is, you know, I'm not sure which is worse, but so long and short of it, I don't, I don't know anymore who's in charge and who's really making the calls and what, what really is going to happen. But I do know that things do happen and I do know that they happen sometimes in a way that can surprise you. And so I sort of predict surprise. That's sort of the the notion of the black swan. You sort of build it into your worldview that things are going to go wrong when you least suspect it. And, you know, when you do suspect it, you can try to get better at, you know, the analysis, but you still don't really know. So I was just thinking about, you know, basic probability theory of three events happening or none of these events happening. Cause we're talking about three basic geopolitical hotspots right now. We're talking about Ukraine. We're talking about the middle East and we're talking about the Pacific ocean, China, the United States, Taiwan. If you give each of those possibilities over the next year, a 50% chance of getting really, really bad, the probability of none of those happening is less than 20%. Now the inputs matter here, garbage in, garbage out. If you do the wrong assumptions, it doesn't matter. You know, you're going to get a wrong output, but if you just give it a, a coin toss for each of them, you know, the, the math is pretty simple, but basically the probability of all of them happening is low, but one of them happening out of all of those three places is, is not low. I mean, you, you have, you have a decent chance, like an 80% chance of maybe one of those places getting, getting pretty bad. Um, again, based on the assumptions, but that's scary. And I don't know what the world looks like if, if we have yet another global war, and this is why people are talking about world war three. Um, just from a practical standpoint, I, I've already made a lot of life decisions to sort of insulate myself from a general degradation and even including nuclear war, which a lot of people think is insane, but I don't think this year or last year has, uh, made that look more insane. I think it's made it look less insane to assume something like that could happen. So what, what does a normal person do though? You know, when they're worried about making rent and, keeping their job commuting. I mean, yeah, what can you do? It's like you're in a big city and you're, you're a target uh, effectively if, if there's a world war. So I don't know. You have any advice other than that? How I stopped worrying and how I fell in with the bomb, fell in love with the bomb, right? It's like literally at that point, I'm not trying to be macabre, but like there's nothing you can do. If you're of average means you'll have, you'll do what the average, you know, outcome is. Unfortunately, um, but I, I think that is the very unfortunate situation right there is that effectively you're putting people in a position where even if they had followed shelters or even if they had a stock side, you know, how could you survive that? You can't. I mean, you have to follow to whatever end it may be. And, and um, I think our job as citizens, as men, is to uh, push back, take an active role as much as we can, whichever way we can to push for peace, for push for responsibility to better our fellow men where we can. But everything outside of the uh, zone of influence for our personal self, to be frank with you, it's just like life. You just got to roll the dice sometimes. And I think if uh, there's this uh, psycho uh, psychological rule of thumb where 
if you're faced with a situation where you can't change the situation itself, there is no efficacy in worrying about negotiating it. You simply take it, if that makes sense. And uh, it will help you in the near term uh, more than it would if you just constantly were tearing your hair out trying to figure out a way around this impossible wave. You know what I mean? Well, so, I, yeah, that, I that's, 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 that makes sense, assuming you can't do anything about it. Now, obviously, we can't affect public policy at our level, you know, unless somebody listening is, uh, I don't know, controlling the, the nuclear launch codes or something. But what you can do is control your life, and you can make decisions that improve or make, the, make your life worse. And... I think you can still do that. Now, you're right. You can't worry about things you can't control. Uh, famous Wharf quote um, that Nick used to like to bring up is, uh, you know, worrying about something that you can't control only wastes energy and creates its own enemy. Uh, that's right. Um, but for things that you can control, where you live, where you work, whom you associate with, um, where you put your money, uh, what you spend your time on, you know, building skills, relationships, recreating, whatever it is. Those are choices you can't control. And I, I will say that those are still important. Just to not, not push back, but just to maybe sort of separate the areas where right. people can worry and not worry. And, and I don't want to give people a false sense of fatalism. I think that there's a lot of stuff that you can do. I think uh, it, practical advice for people that are listening, what you can do. What you can do is be a better man. I know that sounds kind of stupid, but really just focusing on the fundamentals. Basically, your moral alignment, your practical material prosperity, um, accumulating uh, skills, both of your profession and ancillary ones like uh, survival, um, you know, basic survival, martial arts, connecting with people. Um, socially, you can be making friends. I think a lot of people, and especially in the United States, they consider friends to be a luxury and a non-entity, especially increasingly family. But now that we're coming into times of strife and um, uh, deprivation, you're going to start seeing why the purpose of friends and family are for. They're for a support network. They're your tribe. And as much as I probably, I think, Adam, you probably hate the word tribalism because I think you're a, kind of an engineer guy, but I think that is really where you're going to get survival mode from you can't survive as a lone wolf get that no, out i agree with you I I, yeah. I I try to build relationships yeah. exactly no I, i'm not trying to attack you i guess i'm trying to talk about the audience um because i've met these guys before and i would say this you know we only live or die as a team work as a team find your team build your team and i think you'll survive that's I will, my I, will, I will say it's hard to find a good team though and, and that's what anybody who's been successful i will say is is probably the the biggest differentiator between their success and not is they found that core team so i'm agreeing with you but i, I will mm -hmm. say it's hard and i i don't know I, I maybe i'm more or less picky than others i'm not really sure i haven't really examined that too hard but um i do think putting your relationships to some degree of a test I think really is important because you don't really know who your friends are until that happens. And many people have mm -hmm. said this, but you, it's so true. You um, got to put their toes to the fire. And, that, you, and you when do. you find those guys, you got to keep them, you know? It's almost like, uh, you know, guys in the manosphere complain about women 
and they're shit testing, but that's exactly <laughs> what that is. It's basically seeing if their man is capable or not. And it's, it's, it's an instinct I think they have, but it's, it's rooted in, uh, it's not reason. It's just, it's rooted in like adaptation and survival. And it, it, it's, it's not illogical. Mm-hmm. I think there's this proverb, which is a uh, hire for um, attitude, train for performance. And I think that, you know, when people say there's not that many good teammates out there, I think what they mean is how good they are at things. If you're a leader, you'll, you'll build them up. What you need to find is people that are in it. You know what I mean? And uh, I think just to wrap up this uh, transmission, I would leave this with the audience. I would say this. I would say that there's always hope. There's always hope because if you're breathing, if you're drawing blood, if you're drinking, you're with your woman, you're with your family, you're still in the fight and you got to fight every day. And I think that a lot of demoralization, there can be a very somber tone, especially, you know, among our friends and stuff. And I don't believe in that. I believe in strength and I believe that we have what it takes to win. Um, I think that things won't come. Uh, I don't think that we will be overcome by just, Destruction. I think that we will rise to the occasion and overcome whatever forces may happen. So I'll leave you with that, and I will say that uh, you know, first of all, Adam, thank you so much for having me on your show again. And I just wanted to to make sure that everyone walks away with this and doesn't doom pill about everything. I think people should be aware of the situation, but know in your heart that we will win no matter what. And I'll be there with you every step of the way. Well, I can give you the last word uh, if you want, but I, I will just respond and say, um, you know, Hans, myself, all of our other co-hosts, whenever they decide to show up, by the way, they they might. We're, we're still friends, um, but <laughs> we, um, yeah, we, we haven't we haven't lost touch with them, for, if anybody's wondering. But um, I do feel and this is not necessarily a rational thing, but it is an emotional thing. I, I, I will say I do feel better when I'm able to be open about these things with people. And it's mm-hmm. sort of sad and maybe pathetic that we have to do this over a voice over IP system across hundreds, if not thousands of miles sometimes to find us and, uh, and the people, but you, you know it when you do, and, and it, it means a lot. And, you know, I, I, I work pretty hard every day, whatever I'm doing, but it, it becomes, um, it becomes very difficult sometimes to gauge if any of it means anything, unless I actually talk to people. And, mm-hmm. I think having that connection, having that friendship, having that relationship network is so vital to the spirit of continuing forward because without it, um, whether it's just how we're designed or whether it's meant to be that way, you can't, you can't, you can't win. You have to, you have to have a, your, your people. So I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen, brother. Well, thank you so much, Adam. I really do appreciate you having me on. Thanks to Hans. I think he had to leave, but 
I really appreciate being on this, and I hope you guys keep on chugging away <laughs> at the myth of the 20th century because God knows that uh, you're, you know, as much as you say that, like, it makes you feel better uh, saying these things, it makes us all feel better because it, it does help articulate. If you can't articulate the problem, you can't start working on the solution. And it's guys right. like you that takes, you know, integrity and moral courage to actually go out there take the risk of you know all the you know whatever reprisals may happen from some freak on the internet well you know my my my, my, yeah you're welcome and thank you and and i think uh i agree with uh i don't know if z-man put it this way but he i think his intention was the same i think our goal you know because we're pseudonymous um but our, our goal should be to be able to at the very least talk about this openly someday. And it's so sad that we can't. And it's, it's like, we're not even saying anything that weird. It really isn't weird. Any other country you could talk this way, you know, assuming you're not in North Korea or something, but I mean, you know, most countries you could speak about the interests of your people. I mean, it's it's just normal that that's like, the centuries, the thousands of years of human history, that's how people are. And we live in a very odd country, frankly. Uh, and it, it hasn't always been that way for those of us who are old enough to remember it, but it's been slow and steady. And you know, I think Lance would sort of describe it as like the communists take over. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really much disagree with that. I think that's pretty accurate in what's happened but it's the um, commies <laughs> no not not like the kremlin per se it's just the people that want to use guilt and psychological manipulation to debilitate the american people and the people of the west in general have done a good job and they've done it through the media and the educational institutions and they've demoralized us and well, it's, 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 it's frustrating. The eternal, and, it's the eternal uh, helot. You know, it's, it's like Nietzsche puts it in terms between master and slave. It's, it's the international Bolshevik that because I know it's the usual suspects, but it's, it also intersects with multiple other ethnicities. They have a lot and, of allies. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think it's universal thing. And I think Nietzsche is right when he points out there are elements in every people. And uh, I think the enemy is not just one or two ethnicities or something or whatever. The enemy is a spiritual one that intersects all of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I know that seems millenarian, but I think that's the truth. And why I call them communists is because that's the closest frame of reference an American has to what is the underpinning of their economic, which is what it's so weird how Americans think it's just an economic no, difference. It, it's the but, politics of envy, I think, is the way I sum it up. Yes. But go ahead. Yes. Yes, no, it's exactly that. It's resentment. You know, it's exactly, exactly as you say it. It's jealousy of the beautiful, the strong, and the capable. It's the resentful little cretins, the botched and the bungled. And so you're absolutely right. Every time you go on Twitter and you see somebody who's counter-signaling something that is like just an obvious, at least to us, at least, point, you look at their profiles and their tweets and they're the most shriveled Redditor types that you've ever seen. And it, it every, almost every time, you know, if it's not our greatest allies, it's, it's those, it's those other types. Um, you know, people of color are not even that bad. I mean, it's really that, that white liberal, that self-hating, frankly, it's jealous, funny. but it's like, they're, I'll add have, this. It, yeah. I'll add to this is that people think that it's, you know, the Jewish nation does the Bolshevism thing, but, Israel is actually 
under threat from exactly what we're talking about. There's a Bolshevik element that is actually trying to undermine the nation of Israel. So it's yeah, sure. it, it, it it's like it's a universal thing. And I'm not trying to excuse or whatever. I'm just trying to point out, objectively speaking, that it's a universal phenomenon. And I think that the way that you overcome that is by closing your heart to pity. Because these people are very uh, sensitive to pain and fear. And there's a reason why the Spartans did a yearly culling of the helots is because that's the only thing that they really care about is force. I mean, it sounds terrible because especially to an economist and someone that loves e- economic stuff is, is that you think that people res- respond to incentives, positive incentives. But it's not just that. And I think these people really only respond to a negative one. But I don't want to get too much in the black pill. Like I said, I believe that each one of us is one million. You know, like Heraclitus said, one man is 10,000 if he's best. I believe you and I, Adams, Adam, excuse me, we are one million. And we'll conquer all. We don't need a whole multitude of people. We just need a few good men. I, I, I will add, and actually, I will multiply. <laughs> you want to be a force multiplier. And whatever your, right. your, your value is, you are more than the sum of your parts. You are some positive multiplication of your parts. And mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the true network effect that you know, made the the billions of dollars in Silicon Valley. So if we can figure out just a 10th of that, because we're so much more a number, we, you know, we could figure things out. So I think that there's some promise there. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, with that, Adam, do you want to just uh, sign us off here? Oh, just thanks for coming on. Um, always good to actually speak from the heart uh, on some issues that are really important. Um, I, I don't, our our show format is not really one based on response videos equivalent to the news because we usually it's it's a lot of inane stuff that doesn't yeah. doesn't really merit attention frankly in the scheme of things but i think what's going on now it kind of almost demands discussion and i hesitated to really do a show on the current geopolitical state because we we do a lot of that stuff and and sometimes it's it's hard to sort out like what is important in the scheme of things but it it does seem like there's something something to be concerned about right now and uh it just seemed right so uh thanks again um everybody out there uh you know we'll we'll survive we'll we'll be fine most likely but you know just uh just keep in mind that you're not alone and work towards something that means something to you. And, um, and there are other people out there like you that, that care about it. And I think there's, um, there's a lot of good that can come from troubling events because it, it is a test and it does, it's a forcing function that causes people to, whether they want to or not, articulate their positions that can help you in the long run find out where you should be going and whom you should be associating with. And I think that's, that's a good thing. And, you know, a lot of the troubles that we have in this country are maybe overdue, maybe unnecessary, but, um, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger kind of thing. So hopefully with that attitude, you know, we'll, we'll do okay. And what kills us makes us impossibly strong. Hell yeah, brother. 100%.
These computers give us instant access to the state of the world. Troop movements, Soviet missile tests, shifting weather patterns. It all flows into this room and then into what we call the Whopper computer. Whopper, what is that? It's a war operation plan response. This is uh, Mr. Richter. Paul, would you like to tell these gentlemen about the Whopper? <clears throat> well, the Whopper spends all its time thinking about World War III. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it plays an endless series of war games using all available information on the state of the world. The Whopper has already fought World War III as a game time and time again. It estimates Soviet responses to our responses to their responses and so on.